The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. It's that time again. It's episode 18 of the Cinematography Podcast. Woohoo! Can't we're legal. <laughs> <laughs> Last one, we were able to go to R-rated movies. That's right. Now uh, we can buy tobacco products. All right. And join the army. <laughs> That's right. And vote. All right. So episode 18 of the Cinematography Podcast. Ben, who's on the podcast today? Uh, today it is Sonny Behar. And Sonny Behar isn't maybe a name that everyone is going to know because Sonny keeps a low profile on the, uh, on, t- on the internets. But he's somebody who's had an amazingly humongous impact on filmmaking as we know it today. Uh, he is. He's one of these uh, sort of hidden, sort of unsung heroes, unless you happen to be working on the technical side of the industry and know who he is and what he's doing. But that being said, in the interview, we still are talking about craft and we, we get into tech, but we don't get into like lines of code. I want to avoid this uh, ever being a podcast where we just sit here and recite lines of code. We strive to never do that. So, Ben, what's our banter today? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had a, we had an interesting conversation uh, just before coming and sitting down here to, to record this. But uh, what was that? Well, it was actually prompted by a, a friend of mine who I've known most of my life. She asked me if I would talk to her friend's little brother who just graduated from high school and wants to go to the same film school that I went to. And I was like, sure, no problem. And he apparently he's a big horror fan. So he wanted to talk to me about that stuff. And he was uh, saying to me that, you know, he, he loves film. He loves the look of film. He loves gritty, grainy film, whatever. And I said to him, uh, have you ever shot anything on Super 8 or have you ever looked at Super 8? And he was like, what's that? Yeah, what's Super 8? That, there's, there's a generation who have never seen Super 8 film. Yeah, it's crazy. So I kind of blew his mind. And uh, I don't know if I really blew his mind. But I, I showed him some links. But in so doing, I found out something that I didn't know as an avid Super 8 uh, film. I mean, like the first film I ever made in my life was made on uh, black and white Tri-X. So I found out that Kodak is resurrecting Super 8. They are. And, and in a really kind of cool way. And supposedly... Coming to a store like Hot Rod Cameras in in the in 2018, they'll be uh, available for sale, and you can buy film, and you can uh, buy a camera, and when you shoot the film, you send it in, you mail it in, and then they scan it at 4K, and then you download your file. Seems a little excessive to me, given that like 16 millimeter is only 2K at resolution if you scan it. You can get more than 2K at a 16. You have to have a good scanner, but yeah, you can you can do it. Fair enough. But Super 8, 4K for Super 8 does seem a little overkillish but hey whatever we're quickly going to a 4k world i mean everyone's tv set now it's hard to find an hd television set that isn't like ridiculously inexpensive now but yeah there's there's 4k everywhere so this camera also has like a lot of modern things on it it has a c mount so you can get all kinds of lenses for it which is very cool but it also has an electronic viewfinder and i will say one of my bugaboos with super 8 even back in the day was having any kind of video tap and with this you can even run i believe an hdmi out to a field monitor so that you can shoot like regular old movie and you don't have to have your mug pressed up against the crappy ass viewfinder. That's right. Record sync audio with the, onto a little memory card. It's, it's really clever. Is it, is it blimped? Is it, does it make sound? I believe it does make sound. The one that I handled uh, did not actually work at the time, so I couldn't uh, hear what it sounded like, but yeah. it's supposed to be quiet. Hopefully it's quiet enough that you can get like decent, uh, you know, double system sound or whatever out of it. But yeah, no, very excited. And uh, so going off on that jag and thinking about like grainy things, 
I went back and on Shutter they had just recently added Darren Aronofsky's first feature, Pi, which is a huge favorite of mine from back in uh, 1998, shot by Matthew Lee Boutique, someone we hope we can one day get on the podcast. It was shot on 16 millimeter, but they shot it on black and white Tri-X. They wanted, as I recall, they wanted to look like a Sin City kind of a look. So it's like either black or white. Very that, high contrast. Yeah. Yes. I recommend anyone who, who has the wherewithal, if you have Shutter or if you can find, I don't know if, I don't think it's on uh, Netflix or anything like that, but if you can find Pi, especially, uh, th- this is something that I, I think is actually, it's, it's interesting to see because I don't think of Darren Aronofsky as like an old timer filmmaker. He's, you know, the same generation, he's the same generation as me, basically. He's a few years older you know, P.T. Anderson, people like, you know, that. But you go back and you watch Pi, and now we have this giant body of work from Darren Aronofsky to compare it to. And it's um, it's amazing to me to see kind of the kernel of what he was to become in this one, you know, very micro-budgety for its time kind of film. I'll mention a couple of other notable small format film, like 16 millimeter films that, that went on and got a lot of attention, like uh, Leaving Las Vegas was 16 oh, yeah. millimeter. And then another Aronofsky film, uh, possibly my, my favorite one of his, uh, Black Swan. Shot I mean, I think that he mostly shoots stuff. I know he shot Mother on 16, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I, I didn't see it. I don't think it's the most recent American cinematographer. I think it's the one before that. I know that Spike Lee works in 16 millimeter. There, there's several people out well, there who do. And they shoot The Walking Dead in 16 millimeter. They do. One of the, I think, the last television series right now that's being shot on 16. Total sidebar. But one of the things I love about Matthew Lee Boutique is he goes off and does like giant superhero movies and then goes back with Darren Aronofsky and makes a weird ass movie like Mother that's just bonkers, but a very small personal story. He's got that right touch, but I, I love seeing like the themes of Aronofsky, but also the visuals. I think the budget on Pi was like $60,000. So they didn't really have a lot to work with, but they were shooting on these 60 millimeter cameras and the cinematography is gorgeous, but it's grainy as all hell, intentionally so. And like you said, it's very high contrast. And uh, I, I think that that movie holds up you know, reasonably well. In my short end this week, I'm actually going to talk about another grainy movie, not shot on 16, but very much the aesthetic of 16. And I think that movie holds up spectacularly. So you'll have to wait till the end of the show to hear about that. I do think it's interesting, you know, especially given that Kodak is trying to convince younger filmmakers to give Super 8 a spin, maybe shoot some other, some smaller formats or, you know, I've also heard that if you wanted to get 16 or 35 and you reach directly out to Kodak, that they're able to help you and make deals and get you cheaper film. I think that's on a case by case, but yeah, yeah I, I've heard about that too. Be people either getting gifted some film or some film along with a large order of film yeah. or uh, some sort of discount on film. Like they, I hear are being very aggressive about trying to let people take a little bit of film and do a test like uh, and they're willing to put their their look up to the best digital cameras out there. So that's that's interesting. The aggressiveness that Kodak is trying to come back into the market. Part of me says and I always talk to people, it's like I, I sort of don't miss shooting film in the sense that I always had to pay for it. The college I went to, you had to pay for your own stock and processing and all that. But if I feel like there is something that you learn from working with film, which is a certain discipline, knowing like we would always obsess about shooting ratios. Like I'm going to shoot a seven to one ratio, which means I'm going to shoot seven times as much film as will end up in the final product. And you would get very mathematical about it. When I was shooting, I would know, okay, I'm only going to use the master shot for these parts of the scene. So I'm only going to shoot it for those parts of the scene because I'm never going to need it for anything else. And in the digital world, it's like, I don't care if I just never stop rolling. I'm going to roll and roll and roll. And seven to one is a very disciplined ratio, but Let's let's make this easy for everyone who's listening who maybe have never heard the term shooting ratio before. If you're making a two hour movie, that means you're shooting 14 hours of footage. Yeah. If you're doing a seven to one ratio, you're 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 
got seven hours of stuff you got to wade through to get down to that too. That includes the slate. That includes rollouts. That includes when you, you had a mistake and you didn't want to use it. My thesis film in college, which turned out to be like 27 minutes long, I shot on a seven to one ratio. Very, very disciplined about it. And it kind of sucked because a lot of times that means like, okay, well, we didn't get exactly to the performance that I was hoping to get or we didn't nail that shot but we have to move on because we don't have the film to to, we can't mess around or I have to figure out how I can do something with less coverage because I mean well let me break it down even further so let's say you're doing a dialogue scene and you want to shoot the whole thing all the way through in a master and two close-ups it's a dialogue scene between two people so the master you're gonna you're gonna do it twice the overs, you're going to do each one of them twice. That's now a six to one ratio. You've just used so much jargon. For anyone who doesn't know, a master shot is generally the first shot that covers all the action in the scene, and then overage and coverage and uh, close-ups, those are all the little bits and pieces to make the scene a scene. Does that sound fair? That's true. I'm okay. sorry about all the jargon, everyone. That's okay. Well, I think most people actually, well, I don't know. Uh, there's a portion of our audience that totally knows that, and then there's another portion that's like, what? What did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but basically, I mean, think of it that way. If you're shooting a very basic dialogue scene, and you're going to do it in three shots and that you would basically get two takes and then between all of everything maybe the the equivalent of one more take uh and that might include your inserts or whatever and you can do them exactly one time and then you're out yeah that's that's a very disciplined shoot yeah and we would learn how to do that and uh digital has uh, has just kind of you know taken the shackles off of that i don't think it's a bad thing but you know with digital a lot of times now uh you know it's like we'll do you know whatever take one and then if we don't if, if nothing uh, is broken or needs a complicated reset i'll just be like okay everyone go back to one and without cutting we'll do four takes within a take mm-hmm. and it's not until like you're starting to see visible sweat or there's like a direction you need to give everybody but even if it's like a quick direction hey punch this one line or hey you know what, whatever you know you just keep doing it until you get it right and it does save you enormous time on set and it isn't really that much of a pain in the dick in uh, post. It can be a little bit of a pain in the dick because you have to sift through, uh, you know, boring resets. I once was editing a project that I did not direct and they left the camera rolling for a relight. And so I'm waiting. I, I had to no, wade through like so bad. 30 it's minutes so of footage. Bad. I had to wade through 30 minutes of footage to be like, because and I didn't, nobody gave me like a log or anything. I had no idea what I was looking at. So I'm like, uh okay, uh, where's the part that I'm supposed to use? Is it the the grip uh, putting a black wrap around the uh, the barn doors there? What? Yeah. I think there's a lot of editors out there who feel like they don't get any respect when they see stuff like that. Because I, I know some editors and they're like, yeah, it's, it's a complete mess when they just let the camera roll and roll and roll. You don't know what's important. You don't know what needs to be saved and what needs to be thrown out. I mean, there's a lot of, they're just going to shuttle through that as quickly as possible. And I'll, I'll give you every editor's trick. You ready? Yeah. I'm going to blow your mind. Just use the last take. Just use the last take because yeah. everyone was happy with the last take. Unless you hear audibly someone say, that's great. Let's do one more for safety. But I would like look to- at least towards the end of the rolls. Yeah, that's that's usually pretty good. And if you're not getting a report that has circled takes, as they say, or, you know, your selects, then. Yeah, then you just basically are like, OK, well, let me. And then to me, a lot of times I'll even if it's something I directed and I don't remember which which take was the best one. I'll usually start looking at the later ones and might maybe even start constructing the scene out of the later ones. And when I start hitting a hitch where it's like, oh man, I didn't get the performance here. That's when I'll start looking into other takes to see if there's uh, a performance that can be built uh, out of other parts. A lot of times I'll find like a whole take where I'm like, oh crap, I should have used that one for the whole thing. Then I'll rebuild the edit around that. Yeah. It's uh, it's really interesting. So the really good editors out there, I think what they're maybe one of their best skill sets is that they can watch a bunch of raw footage and 
determine very quickly, hey, the performance is good here, or hey, this is this is really usable stuff. And then they can make their own logs and notes and things and figure it out without having to watch everything all the way to the end. Like, I know you cut a lot of stuff, so it's like, how often do you sit through and watch every single frame of whatever is provided to you? I think the answer is probably never. Like some of the stuff that I was doing for Disney over the summer was like interview based. Mm. So you have, have to, wa- you have to watch that for content. You have, you have to watch the whole interview. Like, you know, you start to feel like, oh, I'm getting paid to sit here and watch an interview. But it's like, if they're, if they don't give you cut notes, if you're not given a paper edit to work off of, which some people do and some people don't, uh, you know, if you're just sort of left to your own devices to make up the edit, then you do have to watch everything. If it's narrative, the chances are I will probably watch all of the takes but, you know, like you kind of get used to the, you know, JKL, like, you know, you, mm-hmm. hit, you, hit, you hit L twice and it shuttles faster through the footage. <laughs> like you get to a point where it's like, OK, I get it. You know, like it, I'm going to look to see if I notice anything spectacularly different. I think that editors, I think editors pay closer attention when they have fewer takes, when they have less to work with. I think they have to. I don't think. Oh, yeah. yeah you, you'll get a if you only deliver your your best circle takes your best selects then that editor is going to go wow okay this is this is all i've got i don't have 50 to go through Uh, i know that david fincher is famous for only delivering selects and deleting tons and tons of stuff on the day at that location like on the fly like that was no good delete so yeah uh, and i think that makes a lot of sense when it comes to the edit you don't have to wade through stuff you know you won't use well and uh, to kind of circle back to what we were saying about film like that it kind of brings you film would bring you the discipline because unless you're working on a giant Hollywood movie that had a budget so big that the cost of film stock was irrelevant. So they would just roll and roll and roll. You don't often on film when the film camera is rolling, you just hear money draining out of your bank account and you're not going to fuck around and do like 27 takes and alternates and stand off screen and have the actors like throw in new jokes and stuff as you're going, you're, you're going to go there to execute what you went there to execute. And I think that that kind of discipline it is, it is a good discipline to have, although I've always said since digital got to the point where you could tell reasonably competent stories digitally, I'd rather learn on that and and become more disciplined later <laughs> because I'd rather not have to pay thousands of dollars for every shitty mistake I make. This is what's actually really interesting about having Sonny on, on the show today is that besides being a cinematographer, he's also a technologist and an inventor. And he's put together something that takes a step towards creating a very, very convincing film look on digital. And I don't want to give anything else away. And I think that that's actually a great way to lead right into Sonny's uh, interview. So, so here's Sonny Bayer. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras in Burbank with uh, Sonny Behar. Thank you very much for coming out here. Thank you for having me. So ordinarily, I'm very well researched, but Ilya texted me like four hours ago and said, hey, can you come down here and interview Sonny Behar? And I was like, absolutely, I can do it, but I am in the middle of an edit session and cannot do any research. (laughs) So he told me a little bit about you. You didn't miss out on anything. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Nothing important happened. Your main focus from what he he was explaining was technology. Or your your cinematography comes from a technology angle or it's very technology driven. And we tend on the podcast to not go into the weeds about technology because it's like if we're like, hey, let's all talk about, you know, X compression or Y, whatever. It tends not to be evergreen. But I also think that there are a lot of thoughts within the the design of technology and, and trends that things are moving into that inform the artistic side. And from from what Elias told me, you kind of live in the, in that world like you're somebody who he said, like, 
HBO, when they wanted to shoot True Blood digitally, they had you kind of evaluate the cameras and test them and help them build the look. And I think that's that's a phenomenal thing because that's, you know, it it's funny because we've hit a point now where like film students who've even been working in the business for 10 years maybe have never touched a film camera. But tell me how you let's just go back to the beginning and tell me how you started, how you got into this stuff. And we'll we'll discuss slowly how you got into the technology side and how that does inform the creative and and where you see that going. Yeah, I mean, you know, I really think my mind is a 50 50 split between art and science. I love art and I love science, like almost equally, which is a real pain in the butt. (laughs) If I could just lean one way or the other, I think it'd be much easier for me. Um, but I've always loved the two. I mean, if you talk about background, I have an undergraduate degree in economics and math and computer science. Whoa. Yeah. And then I got my master's degree in film in uh, directing and cinematography. Okay. So how did you make that switch? How did you go from- Well, here's the funny thing. There never was a switch in my mind. So I did math and sciences because it was the easiest thing I knew how to do. Math always came really easy to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I loved the theater. So my mom, who was always like, you know, you're going to starve as an artist. Don't do that. Uh, if you study math, I'll let you do whatever you want. I'm like, great. Math takes no time to, to study. So, Wait, so you're going to get rich as a mathematician. What's her thinking? Well, yeah, exactly. She okay. thought when I fail as an artist, I can always go work at a bank. <laughs> oh, you could always be an accountant. Exactly. I could just, you know, do the books for somebody. I went to mathematician because eh, whatever. Well, yeah. you know, and math is the basis for a lot of stuff, <laughs> actually. But what's funny is that, you know, again, I, I, it doesn't sound like, I hope it doesn't sound like bragging at all because it's not. I just, math is a facility to me. It just came really easily. Mm-hmm. And so what that allowed me to do is when I went to college, I spent no time studying, literally no, I didn't see, I didn't go to library once the entire time and got straight A's and I was spending all of my time in the theater. I literally, I love the theater so much. I used to write, I used to direct. Um, I had a radio show. I literally spent all my undergrad time in the arts and that's the like funny in, thing. in theater, theater, like on stage. On stage, yeah, theater, theater, writing, directing mm-hmm. and acting for the theater. I always loved that um, since I was a kid. I was a DJ at the radio station locally. Uh, I was into music. So where, me, where was this? What, this what? was in Toronto, Canada. Oh, okay. And so I never considered it pivoting. That's the thing. I, in my mind, I was always in the arts and I was, I was studying the sciences to appease my parents <laughs> so that I can get them off my back and, you know, have a fallback plan, if you will. But I really did it so that I could spend the most amount of times um, doing the stuff I really love, which is doing theater. And so when I graduated from there, I came down to L.A., I was working on a couple of different things. I got a chance to do some theater work here as well. I had a show at the Santa Monica main stage. And when I did the show there, I had, I always loved, again, science and art. And so I had, and this is back in 93, I had a hundred foot video wall screen with screens and they were all on rolling platforms with degaussers and and we had camera switchers in the audience. It was insanity. Basically, it's a 299 seat house. We sold out almost every performance except Tuesdays and Wednesday nights and we barely broke even. What was the show? It was called Apocalyptica. I wrote it in my last year in undergrad and we did it as the Santa Monica main stage uh, in Santa Monica as part of Santa Monica College's fundraising events. And it was meant to raise money for the school. And it was a great show. And I said, we got a really great audience, but the show was just too expensive. I had an orchestra and I had singers and dancers. And I said, just the amount of video tech, SIR at the time supported the show. And there was just too much tech going on for it to be. That sounds nuts. It was nutty. It was nutty. But the great thing that came out of it, this guy, (laughs) Paul Whitehead from Universal Studios came to see the show. 
And he came, he approached me at the end of the show and he's like, why aren't you doing film? A rare instance of a film executive going to see a play. <laughs> exactly. And, and this guy was just amazing because he, he was a creative director and he saw something different than everybody else did. And what he saw was, he said, you know, the problem with theater is when the doors close, there's no residual income. So you have to make all of your money when the doors are open. He says, the kind of stuff you seem to like to do is too expensive to do that kind of stuff. In film... You can do all of that, have that level of control and potentially make enough money to pay for that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And, and and I had never thought about film before that. I was like, I just love the stage. I like the immediacy. I love the control of the technical aspects that happen live. You know, I yeah. think that there's a way you can modulate a performance based on the feeling of the crowd. And that's kind of what I used to love about DJing is I would change up my set depending on how things were going. And I thought theater offered that same thing, especially interactive theater. You know, we had um, MIDI triggers and that kind of stuff that would make it wow. so that the audience... in 1993. In 1993. Like, that stuff's not insane in theater. Now there are affordable ways to do it, but back then that sound that must have been outrageous. Yeah, the boxes were big. The, the amount of uh, tech support needed was outrageous. I'm surprised you weren't recruited by the theme parks. <laughs> you know, honestly, I wasn't looking for any of that. I, I did theater because I loved it. I didn't really... And I was young yet. I didn't really think about how do you make a living. Mm-hmm. You know, I just thought... I just felt bad. I do know after that show i thought it was so much work and so much energy and we just didn't raise a lot of money because it was too expensive and so i realized i can go one of two ways i can either stay in theater if i if it's the kind of stuff i want to do and go the big route which is bigger shows or i look into this film thing and see what's going on there and i had a chance i took a class in producing for the state for the broadway stage this guy bruce lazarus who at the time used to work for disney theatrical productions he was one of the producers of lion king on broadway oh wow and he and I hit it off and I was basically, sh- I was showing him some of the stuff I was writing for the stage. And he said, you know, we should go to Vegas. At the time, the only show there was, oh, for, um, it was Mystère um, on the Strip. There were no other Cirque du Soleil shows. And he's like, we could go pitch the MGM, we could pitch the Luxor. And that's the kind of scale show we need to build to make it worthwhile. It's going to cost a few million bucks, but it has a 30 year lease. If you want to stay in theater, that's what we should do. And I got really excited about it. I wrote this show called Eclipse and we started on this pitching thing. And then, you know, he had a few early meetings and he sat me down. And he said, look, it's a four year bidding process. That's how this thing works. Storyboards, animatics, models, you know, because we're looking for 20 to $30 million investment to build the theater to scale. And he said, are you into it? I mean, nothing's going to happen for four years at best. And if they pass, there's probably no other venue we can pitch it to. And it kind of, I have to be honest, it scared me. I was like, you know, I think at the time I was 23 and I was like, okay, I'm going to be 27 and maybe all of this work goes nowhere. Old man of 27. An old timer at 27 going, <laughs> looking back at my life and going, what have I done? I've wasted the last four years, these leap years doing nothing. Uh, and honestly, maybe I, mean, I copped out. I got scared and I, I thought, well, let me think about it. And I, in the meantime, Paul Whitehead from Universal had seen my show and was like, you should think about film. And so I thought, well, if I do film, I want to do it the right way. I want to go to film school. I know nothing about lenses. I know nothing about cameras. I'd love to kind of really learn it the right way, or at least what I thought was the right way. I mean, there are many ways I've see to, to get there. But for me, I, I value academia. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot when I was an undergrad, and I just find like it's an environment that does well with me. So I went around to a couple of film schools. I looked at USC. I looked at AFI. And you know, the the programs weren't as interesting to me as UCLA because UCLA, what I liked about it was in the first three months you shoot a film 
and then you shoot four films before you graduate, and all of it was on film, 16 millimeter and potentially 35. So some programs I heard, like for something like SC, you may end up never directing. You could join a crew, and then there's yeah, one director yeah. in the team. It's more Darwinian, like the real world over there. And that, it is, that's exactly. Kind of, they're, they're like training people to survive in that world. That's exactly right. And UCLA is a little bit more like learning how to do the craft. Yeah, it's an auteurship. They basically yeah. want everybody to do everything and have you be an auteur on your own your own projects, and that suited me. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to apply. I found out it's like, you know, there's two or 3,000 applicants. They take 21 every year in the master's program. So I literally let fate decide. I said to myself, if I get in, I'm going to do that. If I don't get in, it's a sign that I have to pursue this show in Vegas. And I applied, and by some weird miracle, I got in. And so when I got in, I called Bruce and I said, listen, I think it makes more sense for me to do this uh, rather than, than, you know, take this, this crazy uh, gamble that may or may not pay off. Um, and I, you know, and I, and I was intrigued too. I think that from what I talked to Paul, Paul gave, you know, he brought me over to Universal Studios. He gave me the whole tour and, you know, brought me to the stages. And I was really, I got excited. I definitely, because again, what, what I saw was all of this tech inside of art mm-hmm. again that I hadn't really thought about, even though, of course, it was there. But, you know, my thought of film was just this old clunky camera and a few <laughs> burning lights. And it did it seemed like a low-tech industry to me, honestly. Oh, that's funny. Compared to theater, where you have to make magic happen in real time, right? And, it, and the artifice is much more difficult to conceal because the audience is staring at you right yeah. in the moment. You just have to convince the audience to not look at the artifice is really the thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so in my mind, you know, simplistically so, I thought, well, film is easy. One, you have time. You can go back and redo it. And you have all of these tool sets. And then I started realizing, no, there's so much technology. And even back then that um, I thought, I think I can find a home here. I can think I can do something cool with art and science in this medium. Well, and back then, like, you know, so you're talking about like 1993, right? Right. So it's still very film driven, but there's like a lot of new digital toys kind of coming to the fore and it, yeah, I mean, it's starting to transition. Yeah, but, but still, I have to say when I came there, I mean, Avid was at AVR 2, <laughs> right? So you had R mags, so there were one gigabyte, and I they remember. were like, you'll never fill those. What's well, one gig? I mean, what are you <laughs> going to do with all that space, right? And I remember looking at the images, and they were standard F, obviously, on the monitor, and one eyeball was two pixels. So you were never sure if the eye line was left or right until you actually, you know, conformed your negative. That's funny. So for me, it felt very coarse. Like the tech, you know, we had flatbeds and Steenbecks and and chems. I hate that. And that's like a motor driven God, I hate those things so much. Yeah. You know, and we had uprights. Um, splicers. It felt like like a mechanical industry. That's so funny. I mean, I guess it, it does make sense. But also, you know, when you think about you know, what a film crew does is sort of they go stage a play in a place that's not designed for a play to be. So they come in and bring in their own light grid and their own sound and whatever. And they come in and do it like a military operation and get out. Yeah. So they make so to me. I, yeah, I, I, it's interesting because I I do theater and film as well to this day even. So I, I know what you're saying, but I've always I always I always think like for theater, all you really need is like a script and an actor and you got to play. Right. You can scale it scales from there to, you know, Spider-Man, turn off the dark or whatever. Right. But for film, it's like you need a lot of technology and and technology, I think, is a lot of times where people, uh, you know, you meet a lot of people, especially out in L.A. who are like actors who want to make a web series and they don't know jack shit about any of the technology. And so and, and I feel like I'm always having to explain the technology, even though it's not 
it has that like lenses and stuff haven't changed that much you know right i actually think you know what's funny about that is that i think technology has gotten more accessible and cheaper but it's actually gotten more complicated mm-hmm. i think it was more expensive before and less accessible but fairly simple i mean if you think about it no matter what film camera you used it never affected your final image. The gate opened, exposed a negative, and it's really that Kodak negative that held your image that you would then process. So you would not know if I shot on an Eclair or if I shot on a CP16, right? Whereas now, you you might know that I shot on a 5D versus an Alexa. Yeah. So everything about how we bake the images today digitally has changed how complex things are, whether you shoot log or linear, whether you shoot raw or some form of compression and how you debayer that. I mean, I think there are so many more complex things that can affect your final image where back in the day, I really just focused on learning. You know, I did the dual track directing and cinematography and I spent all my days just testing film stocks because that to me was the mystery. They each had their own characteristic curves and some were low con, some were high con, they had different color palettes and then you could mess with them in the lab and push and pull and cross process yeah. and ENR and there were so many things you could do to it. Um, but everything else was essentially locked in, meaning the camera, the editorial bay you used, none of that affected your actual outcome. So I, I found that there was a way to focus, whereas now you kind of need to be a jack of all trades. You need to understand the pipeline from beginning to end because yeah. so many things can affect your final image. And you can make one wrong move at the beginning that you can't walk back later or you you know only partly. So when you were at UCLA, did you choose more directing, more cinematography at that point? Well, the funny thing is, you know, I had been directing in theater for a while, so I felt very comfortable working with actors. And so... When I took, you know, directing the actor classes, those felt really easy to me. So I focused a lot on cinematography. I took a ton of cinematography classes and I took screenwriting classes and producing classes. But, you know, when you do the dual track, you they make you actually, at the time, I think it changed now, but at the time I had to do both curriculums entirely. So the directing curriculum, you had to write and direct four films. In a cinematography curriculum, you not only had to take all the cinematography classes, you had to shoot three thesis films of other people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I had to do both of those programs at the same time. But I loved it. I have to say, you know, when I signed up, UCLA is an all you can eat. You know, you, there's, you don't pay per class, you pay per quarter, and you can take as many classes as you want. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I didn't that's know a that. bad environment for me. I was there day and night. <laughs> I took every class. I, I think I literally I was 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Uh, I was there all the time. Is it still like that? It is still like that. Oh, you wow. basically a flat fee and you take as many classes as you can fit in your schedule. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. If you're in, if you're that kind of person for me, I couldn't do it any other way. I was just so curious. I just wanted to know about everything. Mm-hmm. And I just took as many classes as I could. Did you have like an end goal in mind at that time or were you just trying, were you just a sponge learning all these things? Yeah, honestly, I didn't know where this was going. I just, I wanted to, I was fascinated every day. Every day I came to school, I learned something new. I was inspired by, you know, professors and then I worked on other people's movies. I mean, that's the big thing about UCLA. You crew on everybody's films. They crew on yours, you crew on theirs. And I learned a ton from my friends and I I just loved everything about it. I honestly didn't start thinking about work until my third year, the end of the third year is when people start going, what are you going to do? You should write a script. You should do this. Mm. You know, they start scaring you with the real world (laughs) part. Um, which is scary, no, no doubt. Well, yeah. So, so what was where where was your head at that time? Well, here's what's really funny. So, I had I had shot uh, three films by then. I was working on my thesis film, and my films had uh, won quite a few awards back then already. 
uh, my second film. And I play, I went to a bunch of festivals and then I got a bunch of award money to do my thesis film. What was it called? My thesis was called Chaos Theory. Mm-hmm. And it won a uh, student Emmy for best comedy. Oh, wow. Yeah, I won a BAFTA for best short. Yeah, I won a whole, I, we screened in Japan. We screened at the Beijing Film Festival. We screened all over the place. Uh, it was really a blessing. It was amazing. Um, so the, the funny thing about that, though, is while that was happening, I was thinking to myself, while we were finishing the film, I was already getting really good feedback from my professors and from my, my, my classmates. I knew the film was going to do pretty well. And everybody was like, you've got to write a script. You've got to, you can't go out there without a feature film script. And right as I was kind of playing that, I got a call from Pixar, which was really strange because my, we have reels that we submit for awards internally at school. There's different awards you can apply to. And I had applied to a whole bunch of them, obviously, to do my films. And my reel got into a pile that Pixar picks up from the animation students. So the animation students every year submit films to Pixar for their summer internship program. And somehow my reel got in there. And I had shot at the time as part of my thesis for cinematography, I think I shot one of the earlier live action uh, digital integrated films. So there was an animation student um, who had done a really cool animated film and he wanted to integrate live action photography inside the animation. Uh, it's called a knife's tail, and it's basically these. It's a um, medieval thing where these guys are talking about a fire, and then they slam their knives on the ground, and then they walk away, and then and the knives start bitching and complaining <laughs> about their owners, right? And so we did this 3D green screen composition with fire and mats, and this is again, this is now in 90, 98. Oh wow! Yeah, and with film school budget on the stages at, at UCLA, and so I was already again. It, I, I was never scared of technology. For me, this was a way to learn something new. I, I knew nothing about animation. So Andy Blakelock, who was the director of the film, taught me what he was doing. And I was like, oh. So I was like, okay, this is what I can do to help you. And it came out really, really well. And so I think what happened was Pixar saw the reel and they saw the shot that uh, we designed for that. And then they saw my live action work. And I got a call and it was for the show Cars. And basically the DP on that show said, look, you know, John John Lasseter wants it to feel like NASCAR. He doesn't want it to feel like animation. So the coverage, the the vibe of the, especially the opening race sequence, has to feel like the Pocono Raceway. And and they're like, there's, and they basically said, you know, there's a lot of kinetic energy in your camera work. Do you think you could bring that to the show? And, uh, and they're like, do you know about animation? And I'm like, I don't know anything about animation, but I'm not t- technophobic. I like technology, and I feel like if you're willing to show me stuff, I'm willing to show you stuff. And basically, you know, I flew up there for an interview and it went pretty well. And two weeks later, I was at uh, Emeryville, basically at Pixar, watching the first cut of Cars, which at the time was a black and white animatic. Um, They make the whole movie first and then they go back and remake the movie. And so they showed me the section that I'd be working on, which is the opening race. I don't know if you saw Cars. I did. Yeah, Yeah, the trailer opens up and McQueen comes out and all the bulbs flash. So from there to the end of that race was what we were working on. And I spent the first couple of weeks just studying, you know, Fox coverage of NASCAR. Huh. I also hadn't watched NASCAR, to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't realize it's just a bunch of left turns. I thought there was a figure <laughs> eight or something. It's like, there's no figure eight. It's just a circle. And so I watched a few hours of that to try and get a sense and vibe of how that was like. But I was mostly just fascinated by how much camera technology is on NASCAR. It's amazing. It's like once you break down how they cover those things, it's, you know, between lipstick cams and telephotos and cranes and um, hover shots. I mean, it's really because they they understand what we know, which is it's just left turns. 
And if they don't make it exciting in the coverage, you're going to realize that they're going in a circle. <laughs> and anyway, it was, so I learned a ton. I learned a ton from them. I learned a ton from working on that show. And, and I loved it. I loved every part of it. But at the end of the day, you know, I was there for 10 hours a day baking shots. And I realized, like, I just love being on set so much. I love burning lights. I like being in physical spaces. How, how long were you there for working on cars? It was, it was a few months. I think it ended up lasting... Three or three or four months. Oh, okay. Yeah, they basically they made me an offer to stay full time, and and they were amazing. I really loved all of those guys, but I realized if I don't make a clean break now, I'm never gonna leave. You know, everybody yeah. in the department I was talking to was like, "Oh yeah, you know, I was gonna be here for three four years, then I was gonna go do this," and they were there for eighteen years and twenty because it's an amazing place. We got a pool and a sauna, spas, and and you work with some of the smartest people in the world. It's an environment you just don't want to leave. And for me, I just felt like if I stay, I'm never going to leave. And I realized that I, I still have so many things I want to do. Um, but again, you know, coming from my theater background, I love working with actors. I love working in a physical space. I love seeing light in its true mm -hmm. form. And even though Pixar does amazing rendering and shading and the lighting is gorgeous, it's not the same for me as live action. I yeah, just have yeah. that in my blood. And so that was a moment where we're like, once the opening race was done, we're like, it's probably time to to move on <laughs> it's interesting that to me that pixar like uh on wally as i recall they brought in roger deacon that's right correct to supervise and kind of make it all feel more like real camera work and you know sort of what what they're doing yeah i mean they were on that quest you know there's a, there's an entire team there called the tools department and they basically write custom tools for each show so for example for cars one of the problems was what they called this off z access meaning when you animated a car driving on dirt what happened to the wheels like you, you don't want to have to create a Z animation for the wheels to go up and down just to stick to the ground. So they built a drivetrain, if you will, to allow you to essentially animate the car without worrying about the wheels and how they would animate on whatever surface you drove. Oh, on. interesting. Right. Little things like that. We wouldn't even think about of the course. tools department thinks about. And one of the things that, you know, when I was there, I got to participate in is lensing. You know, when I came there, everything was in field of view. And field of view makes sense to animators because it explains what you can see in the frame. But coming from film, you think lensing-wise because lensing has depth of field. But at Pixar, they would put in the depth of field afterwards. So the shot would be already constructed without depth of field considerations. And that would be added later. So making it like with a rubber lens, just a make-believe like lens. Like a framing chart, if you yeah. will, right? Exactly. So you've got your headroom, you've got the width, you know, what's in there. And I started, you know, talking to them about the fact that lensing is emotional. And when you start framing with the idea of lensing, you frame differently. And so we had meetings with the tools department about creating prime lens sets and zoom lens sets and adding diffraction and diffusion and depth of field so oh, that wow. we could previs that while we were building the shots. And that, I think, ended up being a precursor to Roger coming in for Wally and actually doing it in anamorphic because they did a bunch of anamorphic tests for that show and actually built anamorphic lens sets for Roger to work with. That's crazy. So would you say that you were the inspiration for them bringing in maybe not Roger, but like a real DP? Oh yeah. I mean, I, well, no, it's no, hard to take credit for that, but I would say, I would say I was one of the first people to come in that was not an animator at mm -hmm. all to work in the camera department. And I think, I think that went well, meaning I think our interchange and our exchanges went really well. And I remember at the time, you know, um, we were interacting with Panavision and I was trying to give them as lot, as many hints as possible as to what lensing sets to build and I think, I, I certainly think that inspired them to do more of that. There's a lot of really talented people in the camera department, uh, Jeremy Lasky, Derek Williams, and I know they were fans of Roger, 
right off the bat. Of course. And so when the idea came of doing it, Roger yeah. when, when the idea came of doing it in 235 or doing it anamorphic, it was like he was the natural fit to call in. And I think certainly it would have been harder for him to work with them had they just given him FOV and no lensing and no camera support. By the time I left, we had dollies and cranes and track and lens sets all of that in the tools, in their, it's called Menvi, it's this tool that they use to actually do camera layout. And it's a full featured, essentially, you know, camera layout situation, even for live action. You could do previs with it. That's amazing. Yeah. Do they do anything like previs? I mean, I know they do animatics and their animatics look like Saturday morning cartoons at this point. But. Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't really do any. I mean, they, they did commercials and that's kind of how they started with that Listerine commercial. Yeah. But as, as far as I know, they don't offer. I mean, they offer RenderMan as a tool yeah. for other people to use, but they don't offer any kind of previs tools. Menvi, I believe, is entirely internal to Pixar. Interesting. So, I mean, did you go to work for Pixar right out of college or was there? Right out. Of, I actually had, they, my contract was that they had to fly me back for graduation. So they didn't <laughs> even want to wait to graduation. I left, I think, Man. in April and graduation was end of May or beginning of June. Mm-hmm. So I came back for that for three days and then went back to oh. work on cars. And that's amazing too, that you even right out of college were like, eh, three, three, four months of this, that's enough. And I want to get back to. You know, I don't know if I was that flippant. <laughs> I think that. I on one, I was, I mean, I was so, no, it doesn't honored. sound like you were flipping. It sounds like you were like, you knew what you, so, well, let me steer back to that. So yeah. like, what was the goal at that point? Honestly, if it had been, let's say XYZ animation studio that I had never heard of, I would have just passed mm-hmm. honestly, because I'm not an animator. It's not, I've never dreamt of being an animator. It's never something that was in my blood. I like animation, but I don't love it so that, that I would want to do that every day. But I was always admired, you know, I always admired Pixar, mainly because their ability to tell stories. It's the stories that I thought were so well told and they happened to look amazing, but they just worked. They worked so well. Yeah. And as a storyteller, that's what drew me there. I was like, there, there, is there a magic button? Is there a magic formula? <laughs> How are they doing this? Is there a magic button? Can you tell me? There is actually. Okay. And here's what I learned. You know, one is the people everybody there is incredible. And I, you mm-hmm. know, people say that and, it, and it, you feel like you're kissing somebody's ass, but this is not true when it comes to Pixar. When I first went there in one of the early recruiting things, you, we sat in the theater and Ed Catmull went up there and spoke and said, you know, look to your left and look to your right. And, you know, imagine in high school, you pick the top two best students of the school and you send them to college and you pick the one best of the undergrads. You send them to do their master's degree in the top five best schools in the world and you pick one person each. That's who's sitting next to you. Right. And, and it sounds like it's a, you know, rah, rah, rah. But mm-hmm. the reality, what I found was that was true. Like everybody from the schedulers to the producers to the editors, the tools department, the set modeling, everybody was fascinating. At lunch at the commissary, you know, we'd all sit around and, ch- and chat and I would meet people in the shading department and they all had, you know, PhDs and master's degrees and this and that, but they also had other interests that were fascinating. And I just found myself just constantly in awe of how smart they were. So that I think was formula one. You just have so many smart people. And by being smart, I call creative smart as well. It's a creativity and a smartness that just blew my mind. And then the second thing was their emphasis on story. I mean, John is like story, story, story. And so the story is written and written every day. So they had 25 people in the the story department that were constantly rewriting. And they have four years to make a movie. And they'll just keep rewriting. I mean, we were in the, in the layout department. We'd finish a scene and then be, be told, yeah, we're not doing that scene again. 
We're not doing that anymore. Here's a brand new scene that we replace it with. And then you'd relay out that scene and they would scrap it again because they wrote a better one. Yeah. And I mean, you know, famously, I think it was um, Bugs Life 2 or something, that they literally scrapped the whole movie and started all over again after finishing the film. Oh, Jesus. Because they just thought it wasn't good enough. You know, and I think that idea of it's not good enough, we're just not going to release it. And again, this is pre-Disney. You know, they were still, yeah. it was it was Steve Jobs and Lasseter. And, you know, it was it was a different type of entity. But they truly believe that if something is not good, it's going to embarrass not just themselves, but people are going to be demoralized. And I think moral and, and value to them was so important that they just do it right. And that's what I learned from them is like story, 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 and don't release it unless it's good. Mm -hmm. You know, just keep working on it. Why does nobody do live action the way Pixar does animation in terms of telling the story, in terms of writing? Because I think you can't do it that way. Meaning you can't reshoot a live action film every day. And that's the thing people don't understand with Pixar is like we would, you know, I'd do, I'd build a shot. I'd send it to editorial. Editorial would send a note saying, hey, can you make it six seconds longer? I'd build, rebuild the shot six seconds longer. I'd get a note. Hey, can you include this character in the shot and do an over of this character? And you so you're essentially rephotographing the movie every day for four years. But what, how could you do that in live action? You could do it with animatics. You could do it with storyboards and animatics for sure. Well, okay. So so you're saying animate the whole thing first for four years and then go shoot it? More or less, yeah. I, it, well, maybe, by the time maybe, you've done animating it maybe for, four not for four years, years, they're going to want you to release the movie. Maybe not for four years, but like, well, I, I, I... But that's how long it takes. I mean, the story, when I was there, you know, they showed me the first cut of the film, and I remember saying, thinking, oh my God, this is not very good. Like, I, I swear, that was the first time I saw the film. It was just in 2D, it was hand-drawn, but it was fully voiced, sound work, everything yeah. done. And I walked out, and Jeremy kind of tricked me. He's like, oh, what did you think? And I was like, okay, be nice, say something cool. Uh -huh. I was like, well, he's like, don't, I'm just kidding. We know it's terrible. Like right off the bat, I was like, oh, thank God. And then they, they know it. They basically get the frame, get the idea, get it out. And then we're going to write it. So the four-year process is a writing process. It's a writing process. Yeah. They could, I believe they could get everything done faster if they really wanted to. But it's an opportunity to constantly rewrite the story. Mm -hmm. And it's the jokes and it's the refinement and it's the characters. And you're just finding the nuances. And that's why I really believe that it's it just doesn't apply to live action. We don't have that opportunity. First of all, we have a set limit hours in a day to shoot. Yeah, Here it's like, you know, I was building shots sometimes at two or three o'clock in the morning all night long. You know, it's like there's no clock really. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's a different vibe. Okay, so you come back from, from working on cars. Yeah. And most people would like claw over, you know, most of their, their dead relatives to get the job at Pixar. Yeah. And you were like, again, not flipping about it, but you were like, you went there, you did what you went there to do. And there was something else you wanted to do. What was that thing? Well, you know, part of it was this, I would drive into work at Pixar every day and there were people outside holding signs saying we'll work for food. Like they just wanted to work there for free. Yeah. You know, and I realized it's not fair. I'm taking someone's spot who loves it so much or wants it so much. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm learning and, I, and, and I'm respectful of everybody around me, but this is not what I love to do. So that already told me I don't have that commitment that these people who are dying to get in have. The second thing, honestly, was, you know, after Chaos Theory screened for the first time, I got an agent and a manager and... You know, I was getting invited to a lot of festivals. And at Pixar, it was really hard to take time off because you had all these deadlines. You had to build a bunch of shots every Friday with was review. 
And I felt also an obligation to give back to them. I mean, they were so nice to me. They were amazing. So I was like, I can't, you know, be one foot in, one foot out. And so, yeah. for example, at one point, my agent set up a meeting for me with a big studio. And it was like two o'clock on four, you know, two o'clock on a Tuesday. So I asked Jeremy, you know, can I leave? Just I'll fly back to LA. I'll fly back tomorrow. He was like, sure. So I fly back. I get to LA for the meeting and they pushed my meeting by oh. two days. Oh, you know, and that's when I was like, I can't do this. I like, I, I, I'm not in town. I'm out of town and I can't keep flying in for these meetings that may or may not happen. And I just had to decide. I said to myself, like, this is a sign that I can't do both. And like you said, I think, I think for me, it honestly was that it wasn't a desire. It wasn't a burning passion to do animation. I never, that was not my course. I, I'd started in theater, which was actors and, and, and real life and film had just fascinated me. I love what I learned in cinematography and lensing and, and all that kind of stuff that I felt, I just want to be burning lights on a real set. Mm -hmm. And even if, even if nothing's available yet, I just want to at least put myself in that spot. And so that one of the things that did happen is when I came back, I was able to follow my film to a lot of festivals and go to screenings and meet a lot of people. And, and I couldn't have done that had I stayed. Mm -hmm. And I know it's maybe kind of selfish at the time, but like, it's just where I felt I needed to be. I just wanted to be closer to the live action community. And I also was worried that I'd made really good connections here, going to film school, a lot of my friends were starting to work and that being out in Emeryville is just far, you know, and it's out of sight, out of mind. People forget about you and you know, and I thought it's too early for that. You know, if this is the end of my career and I had done stuff and I decided to explore this other thing and maybe do that for now, that's one thing, but it was still early. I just graduated and and I thought, yeah, it's time to go. But like I said, you know, I, I, I totally respect and understand those who don't leave because it's the hardest decision I ever made. They were just the nicest folks, like truly. It was such a nurturing environment and such great work happens there that I recommend it to anybody. If you are an animator, you know, I know there's some great studios out there, but there's, I don't think there was any place like Pixar. No, no, definitely not. Especially then too, yeah. you know, pre, not, pre the, not, not that Disney's a bad thing, but. You no, know. but you're right. It was a different focus. I mean, John is now, you know, over at Disney as an yeah. executive and he's overseeing both. And, but you're right. It was, it was a different thing. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs had his desk, you know, six doors down from me and he was there every Thursday. Oh, Jesus Christ. Really? It, oh yeah. I mean, it was a very open environment. That's insane. It was crazy. It was, uh, you know, I'd sometimes I'd pretend to go get something somewhere just to walk by and just <laughs> kind of take a peek at him. I never bothered him. I never stepped in, but it was like, you know, that's the place it was. I mean, he was a 51% owner and it was a private company that was just making really cool stuff. That's awesome. So w when you came back to LA, what did you, what was your course then? You know, honestly, I, I, I didn't have a plan. So I came back and I initially just was going to a lot of festivals with my film and I sat down with my manager and, you know, he was like, listen, you know, we started setting up some meetings. So I did a lot of meet and greets uh, where we just passed the film around. I sat down, met people, and then I started writing a script. I had an idea for a story for a feature film. My problem is it takes me a really long time to write. Mm -hmm. I'm a terrible writer because I, I previs all the scenes in my mind first. So I have this level of censorship where if it artistically doesn't work yet in terms of coverage, in terms of how it's placed, <laughs> I just stop writing it. I try to solve the scene before the scene is even written, uh. which is terrible. I don't recommend that to anybody. So it takes me a really long time to write. But I was writing during the entire time uh, I was traveling with the film and taking meetings. And then after almost two years, I had a script. And in the meantime, I was taking just gigs here and there. I was shooting some music videos for some friends of mine. I, w I started doing some color correction out of a bay uh, in my house because basically some of the music videos started shooting on the red one 
and very few people knew how to grade or deal with R3D files. Mm-hmm. And so we would take it to post houses and you know, some post houses would take the R3D and make them HD cam and do a tape to tape session from HD cam. The stuff looked horrible. You know, and I was like, there's gotta be a better way. And that's kind of where I met the Plaster City guys. I met Chioni, I met uh, Steve Barris, and basically started realizing, hey, these guys are doing this in in Final Cut 7, you know, in Final Cut 2 at the time. Yeah. What you year know, would this have been? This would have been uh, right after Pixar, it was 2000, actually no, it was a higher level of Final Cut. This was 2005. Okay. Right, so about 12 years ago. Yeah, so we were probably at like Final Cut version four. Four, yeah. yeah. The studio bundle was already together, so yeah, yeah. so Apple Color was there, and it was Apple Color 1.0. I remember Apple Color 1.0. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, and that's when I started realizing, like, if I'm going to keep shooting these indie uh, music videos, and I, I'm going to want them to look good, and if they're going to make me shoot them on the red one, like, I want to have some level of control over the color. So what was leading you down the path of, of DPing and color grading and stuff like that, rather than continuing to direct? Well, honestly, is directing is a difficult thing to get paid for, mm-hmm. right? Like, what I would have loved to do that. A lot of the offers I got to direct were really just obscure, ultra, ultra, no budget stuff. And not that I wouldn't have done them, but I had no money. You know, I had just come out of four years of film school. I was completely broke. Mm-hmm. You know, it's no secret. I know Pixar doesn't pay a ton. And so I literally, and it's honestly one of the reasons too why. They pay you in glances at Steve Jobs. Hey, you can go down the hall yeah. and see a billionaire. And in honestly, in, in cachet, they're yeah. like, you know, you're at Pixar and people are would die. To, and they were right. People yeah. would die to go work there. And it, I wouldn't. You know, and that was the thing. It's like I, I had no money. I had I had spent I had I had some debt. I had spent all my money going to film school, and I needed to make cash, honestly. And so the, a lot of these features that were offered to me were no budget features, and I had to you know give four to five months of my life you know on a show, and I couldn't pay rent. I literally couldn't pay the rent. So I thought to myself, okay, I have to think quick. What 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 do I know I can do? And I was already shooting because I had shot a whole bunch of thesis films, you know, yeah. doing my master's degree. And all those people then started doing other projects. So I, the first calls I got was to shoot. And then when I started shooting, I started coloring the stuff that I was shooting because we were shooting on either the HVX 200 with crazy PL adapters. <laughs> you remember the first Red Rock micro rigs? Yeah, yeah. So I was doing those because I wanted that Super 35 depth of field. I remember film. the PS Technique one too as yes. well. They had a Pro and a Mini one. Yeah, the Pro was super expensive though. It was like 35 grand. Yeah, exactly. Priced so we, to rent. So we went with the, with a Red Rock because it had a nine volt battery. You remember oh, that was yeah. hanging off the side? And we shot some really cool stuff with that. But that was also DVC Pro HD and people didn't know how to handle that. And then the Red one was just coming out and people didn't know how to handle that. And so I started thinking, okay, well, I'm going to start grading these mainly because I wanted to make sure they looked good. And then as they started looking good, other friends of mine who were DPs were like, hey, can you grade my stuff? And I was like, sure. And then before you knew it, I was grading just a whole bunch of stuff. I, I ended up grading, I think I've graded so far, maybe 30 feature films. Oh, wow. Yeah, 25, 30 different shorts, uh, commercials, and all out of my home suite because I was essentially shooting and grading. And then the grading ended up paying most of the rent at the time uh, while I was writing. And, uh, and then the script was done, and then uh, I, I got the water bottle tour. You know, I went yeah. back to every studio, and and everybody was like, "I love it, I love it." You know, tell me what else do you have? I'm like, I just spent two years writing this thing. I, I actually don't have anything else. Can we can we make this? And they're like, "No, we love it, but uh, we can't make this." But if you have anything else, absolutely call us anytime. Um, so that that was a bit of a you know of a heartbreaker. I spent. Uh, quite a quite a few times, and we we got really close two or three times to getting it made. And once the writer strike came along, another time, 
uh, an actor who I'm not going to name divorced with his wife and they were going to co-produce it together. I mean, it was, you know, crazy things happened. But uh, in the meantime, I just found myself shooting and coloring most of the time. And again, mainly because, you know, I wasn't putting up my, I wasn't putting myself up for a lot of directing stuff, mainly because they didn't pay. I got a lot of offers initially, but all of them are for free, mm-hmm. you know, like indie features mainly. And, you know, I don't know, I guess, you know, if I was in a different circumstance where I say I don't need rent money for the next five, six months, I'll do this. I think I would have taken some of them. I just was nervous. You know, I was like, I got to pay the rent. I don't want to fall over because what my biggest fear was is, you know, taking a job at Starbucks so that I could do this other stuff. You know, I felt like if I got out of film, I may not get back in. I don't know if it's maybe an irrational fear, but I had friends, you know, who work in real estate. Yeah. I had a friend who worked as a private eye, you know, and once you have this steady income coming in, it's hard sometimes to, to detach from that. I think that like, if it's like, I'm going to go pursue another career, I'm going to go get a degree in nursing and become a nurse. Those people don't tend to come back. But I think if, uh, you know, I know more than my fair share of people who are like, I'm going to go be a substitute teacher. I'm going to go work at Starbucks, whatever those, those people can, you know, like you're, you're making a, a pragmatic choice. But like my question as, as you're telling me about this is like your passion for this stuff started in theater yeah. and started in working with actors. And as a DP, you do work with actors as a color grader. You don't work with actors at all. You're right. working with pictures. Yeah. But was there a way that you scratched that itch? Did you miss it or did the desire to do it get a little bit less? Than- no, no, it never did. And the way I, and what ended up happening is a few times I would end up directing NDPing. Mm-hmm. So I started working with Google as a client uh, fairly early on. And we'd go up there and shoot these um, commercials and um, industrials with them. And then I started also doing teaching. And that's when I kind of slowly after a while started doing training seminars as well, you know, lighting and camera training seminars, as well as shooting for the same clients. So I would go, for example, in one week, shoot a couple of commercials and then do a couple of days training for their team, for their video broadcast team. Yeah. And so it was fun because through the teaching, you get to do some hands-on coaching. And then through some of the stuff I was DPing, I started just directing and DPing. Um, so I've, I've never, that's, that'll always be there and I'm never going to not do that because that's what I love doing. I mean, even when I, and I ended up shooting a television sh- uh, show called Bells, it was with uh, Ed Weinberger. Mm-hmm. He was the creator of the Cosby show. Um, he wrote Mary Tyler Moore, Taxi. I mean, the guy, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, the guy is a legend. Um, in Hollywood. One time I worked with him, he was in his late 80s. And uh, initially I was DPing for him. And after a while, the scripts were running short. He had to go back to the hotel room and, and keep writing. Essentially, you know, he wrote 22 page episodes, which, you know, in single camera comedy doesn't work that way. There's, we cut a lot faster, we move a lot quicker. And so he'd realize, oh, we don't have enough scenes to make these cuts be, you know, however long they needed to be. So I started after five or six episodes, I started directing and DPing. He'd basically be in the hotel room feeding me pages and I would be shooting and directing uh, <laughs> oh, as it man. went along. It was a lot of fun. It really was. It was a great cast, uh, great crew. And uh, Ed was amazing to work with. I mean, the, the, the amount of stuff I worked, I learned from him. I mean, you know, Cosby show ran for, you know, seasons and seasons. He won so many Emmys. I mean, Taxi was an amazing show. Yeah. Uh, and his writing is just, you know, you you turn the pages so quickly because he's so fluid. And he, essentially, he's one of the highest authorities on Shakespeare. He's a huge Shakespearean scholar and he does comedy. And, he's, and he basically, you know, tells everything you can learn about writing, you know, sitcoms you can learn from Shakespeare. <laughs> first, you got to learn Shakespeare. First, exactly. Bad, bad news. First, you got to learn Shakespeare. <laughs> then in 25 years, come back and write a comedy. 
So whenever I'm, I talk to somebody who directs NDPs, because I've I've done a little bit of that myself, I don't really consider myself a, a genius at it. And the reason I don't is because I feel like it's hard for me to hold in my head paying attention to a performance and paying attention to composition and lighting. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, for me, honestly, when I direct, I always storyboard. Mm-hmm. And so I even when I work with great DPs and I've worked with some awesome people, I always set the frame. And the reason I set the frame is because I have a very specific way I like to cover a scene or story. And I think kind of that's what attracted Pixar to my reel is that I don't do classic coverage. I never do wide, over the shoulder, over the shoulder, close up, close up. I don't think I've ever done that ever. Mm -hmm. Just because I feel like when you do that, you don't know where the energy is going to be until you're in post. Which means you're not actually directing the energy inside of the scene. You're letting the scene play itself out and you're gonna figure out where the energy is later. Whereas what I like to do is look at the script, break it down into beats, and pick a path for the energy to follow. So for example, you know, sometimes you might shoot a shot where someone's talking, and I'll place someone just to the off side of the screen when they're answering, and you then wanna turn to look at them, but they're next to you, you know what I mean? And I feel like it's doing something to the energy. I'm taking that ball and saying, here's where it's playing in this particular scene. And so, a lot of the coverage I design is interconnected. Like the way my stuff goes from scene to scene, from shot to shot. I, I go, the ball goes here, I'm gonna pass it here, I'm gonna pick it up there. So I really shoot very meticulous stuff. I don't run a scene entirely in every set of coverage. Uh, I pick up things very specifically. So, you know, and that's as a director. So for me, you know, when I'm shooting, I kind of try and bring that meticulousness to it. But when I'm directing and DPing, I realize I'm already breaking down that level of coverage already as a director. Mm-hmm. So the biggest thing then is lighting. And and there, honestly, you know, you have to have a gaffer that you've worked with a lot who understands your style. It's the only way to get through the day. This guy, Paul, that I've worked with for years, you, you know, he's not just an amazing guy, but we also have a lot of the same aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So, you know. What's his last name? Samaniego. Okay. And we'll get into a room, you know, and I'll just tell Paul, hey, you know, give me something soft coming in from the three-quarter back and a little bit of return here, nothing on this side. And I'll walk away and I can do my stuff. And I'm not gonna micromanage what instrument and where it's gonna get placed because he knows exactly the type of ratio we're talking about. We always just deal in ratios. I want it, you know, three to one on the face, you yeah. know, something de- you know, dim in the background, and it's you know, and he'll get the style right away so that I can actually start laying down track, rehearsing the move, and not worry so much about the instrumentation because we've agreed on a ratio, we've agreed on a harshness, softness, we've agreed on a tone. And then, you know, he does his thing, which is, you know, provide the instruments. Now, do you also operate when you're directing and DPing? You know, I used to. I don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I really like to have someone else operate because I think it gives me a chance to see the final product early. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, if you have your headset on, I really listen really, really carefully to the voices of the actors and I watch it as if it's the final movie. And if something doesn't feel right, it pinches right away. If, if it's either the move, the headroom, something's, something's just quite bumping or the delivery, I try to pretend I'm watching it on TV. And I'm like, oh, and that, it happens to me now. I watch shows now. I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> that made the cut. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> oh, that, that line, ugh, that doesn't feel right. Like, yeah. I, I, because I realize I'm doing that when I'm on set right now. I'm basically watching the final movie and criticizing it. And I find that when I'm operating, that's just too much because 
you're trying to keep the kinetic motion. You're trying to play with the actor while they're playing, while maintaining headroom, while maintaining composition. I think that's a little much. And also the other thing I don't do is I'll never direct and DP if they're children. Mm-hmm. I find that's just way too hard. Kids need a lot of attention, a lot of focus. Oh, yeah. And if there's kids in the scene, I've done kids, you know, commercials with kids. I've done all my all my shorts at kids in them, I think. When I do that, I have to, I just direct. I cannot DP at the same time. Mm-hmm. So this is a question that I ask everybody and uh, any answer is right, including I don't agree with your question and go (laughs) fuck yourself. But I I have come to believe that DPs tend to come at it and, and I'll open it up to director DPs tend to come at the work either from a composition basis, like composing a shot and then lighting into it, or they tend to think of it as, as lighting something. I know that there's a lot of overlap and, and give and take between those two things, but it sounds to me, well, I'll let you answer the question. It sounds to me like you are more, you're thinking in composition when you're writing even. Correct. Yeah. That's why I, my writing process is, is awful and I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> it's really terrible. But yes, I, I write in composition already. So I'm, I'm imagining like if a line is said, I'm imagining where that line is said and why and what what our perspective as a view as a viewer is on that line. And so so from a composition perspective it absolutely is that. But from a lighting perspective I have to say I like lighting rooms rather than objects. Mm-hmm. And I kind of learned that from Conrad Hall. Um if you watch Road to Perdition, you know, he Connie's like an amazing person. Basically he was a cinematographer in residence when I was a student. Oh wow. Yeah. So I got a chance to study. So you with actually him. got to know Conrad. Hall. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah. And he's just, you know, we've had a few we've had Owen Roisman and we've had Stephen Burham. I mean, we've had some really great people, Laszlo Kovacs, but the one who would infected me the most, I'm gonna say, is, is Connie, because what I loved about his his view on things was he believed one in, in density, not so much in color. I once asked him what he thought of Storaro's, you know, color theorem. You know, yellow is the color of anger, green mm-hmm. is the color of passion, and he was just like, you know, it's it, that's. I love him, the man, and I respect him so much. But he's like, that's so complicated. I'm a, I'm a simple person. This is Conrad Hall talking. He's like, I understand density and contrast, and that's how I like to work. And basically, you know, what he does is he infuses light into a room with the idea that the players can walk around anywhere in the room and be in that room. And in Road to Perdition, I mean, they basically did that. They let him pre-light for like three to four hours on each set. And then Tom Hanks would say he'd walk in and feel like he's walking in on a painting. Everywhere he's moving, everybody looks so beautiful. And I think I, I really like that idea. I try to I try to use the least amount of sources possible to try and get the light to feel as natural and directional as possible and try to play the actors in a space that shows that off, you know, mm-hmm. that shows off where we are and how, how the room is gonna play. And so I kind of separate in my mind composition from what's gonna happen with the lighting because I'm hoping that the directionality of the lighting will speak to where the camera needs to land anyway. You know, you don't wanna shoot from the short side of the camera and that kind of stuff. So I know, okay, I've got a big window here. I'm gonna be probably doing some, some three-quarter front stuff so that I've got nice backlighting that's bouncing and skipping off the ground. So it already tells me what part of the room I'm playing in. And then I have my storyboards built where I know where I need to connect people. So, you know, I'm not one of those folks that, you know, lets the actors come in and just block themselves and find their space. And then, because I think if you do that, they get too comfortable too quickly. And mm-hmm. they'll start leaning against a wall and just be like, I want to play the scene here. I'm like, no, you don't. You really don't want to play it there. But now they played it there and they feel like they really do want to play it there. So I don't <laughs> let that happen. I don't do that in theater. I don't, you know, I, I when I took theater classes, I had an act, uh, a, a theater 
professor who would basically come and start the rehearsals by walking you through everywhere you're going to be. You don't know the lines yet. Yeah. She's gonna say, okay, on page three, you're gonna stand over here, and page four, you're gonna, and it felt so unorganic. I'm like, wow, like, what about finding it? Let's start saying some lines. And I saw what she was doing. She was basically making the blocking ideal for the staging and trying to make that second nature in you so that once you started picking up the lines, you drew yourself to standing in those spots. So what she was hoping to do is by getting that out of the way, it wouldn't feel plasticky by the time you actually landed in the spot she forced you to land in in rehearsal number one. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of brought that to how I film a little bit in that I try to very quickly put people in the right spot before they get a chance to throw lines around so that they get comfortable where the right place is. And then I go, let's find it. But now they already feel like they've found it. They're in that space. Mm -hmm. They happen to be in the right spot and now they're making it their own, right? Versus I think letting them go in a direction, and it's not that they don't know where you wanna be, right? So I, I don't play that game. I know where I wanna be. And so I put them kind of in the general place I want them to be in, and then I let them find the, you know, the rest of it to make it their own. Interesting. When you're talking about like the way that you block a scene and the way you prepare to shoot a scene with your storyboarding and stuff like that, sounds a lot like, say, Guillermo del Toro, who does, also doesn't really shoot coverage. Right. You know, it's like he'll have a one shot bring you in and then, you know, we, we might intercut between two shots and then you meet another character and you walk out and it's a different shot. Yeah, exactly. No, and I think that's that's the thing. If you don't want to have to do traditional coverage, you can't leave all the blocking to happenstance because you'll be kind of forced to mm -hmm. grab stuff because you haven't had a chance to think about it. Now, that's not to say that I'm not open to accidents. I think one of the best things that happens is accidents. Things, it's a line read, It's something goes a different direction. I always let that go, I let that happen. But I don't believe that it has to be contrary to the composition or the dynamics that you're looking for. I try to make any accident a part of that dynamic. Yeah, it's just a matter of, like I said, you know, I think that when you, you know, when I'm preparing my storyboards, I'm like in a quiet room at night, usually very late at night, and I'm not on the clock. And I think that a lot of times when you get on the clock on a set, you've got to rush and hurry and hurry and hurry and everything's going wrong and everybody's showing up late and, you know, you have much less time than you think. That's not the time, I think, to go, oh, I don't know what these storyboards are all about. <laughs> you know, I see people do that. Yeah. They second guess themselves or like, I'll just do it this way. And then they look at the product and they're like, uh, think about what state you were in when you thought about the scene versus the state you're in now when you're making this quick decision. You know, so I try to trust my instincts in that respect. Have you ever found yourself in a situation though where it's like you're doing a dialogue scene at a table and it's so much about the dialogue or something like that and standard coverage becomes the most practical solution? Well, but again, I think you're embedding in that question something that is even more important. What do you mean by it's so much about the dialogue? What is it about the dialogue? Yeah. Like, like to me, if someone said to me, this scene is about the dialogue, my answer would be, what's the scene about? Well, okay. Well, this is not like interviewer me. This is me asking you this yeah, question. Yeah. I uh, directed a short not too long ago and it all took place in a restaurant at a table. Okay. And it, and it was a 10 page scene okay. and I'm like, this is deadly boring, but we had to shoot it in a day. Yes. The film isn't deadly boring, but it's like the thought of, you know, shot, 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 shot. But I, you know, like to do standard coverage, but at the same time, the short was very much about the relationship to these two people. And I never wanted it to feel like it was about the filming of it. Oh yeah. No, I mean, look, it, if you can tell that there's an artifice going on, or if mm -hmm. you've, or if you even notice a shot, if you go, Oh, that shot was cool. I think you've failed already. 
because it's not about the shot. It's about the scene, right? So I never try to create a shot that on its own is a shot. But I, what I do try to ask myself is, what is this about? You know, mm. a, a scene, a dialogue scene is never about the dialogue. Never, right? It's it's about something else. There's a subtext yeah. that is happening, right? What does this person want? What does the other person want? Why can't that person just get it immediately? Yeah, What's yeah. preventing that? Why does it take 10 pages? What's stopping that person from, you know, achieving their goal in the first 10 seconds? Yeah. That's, I think, when I start finding other things. Like, is it that they're shy? Okay. One of them is shy. Let's say, for example, one of the person loves the other person, but they're too shy to ever declare their love. Then I start thinking, okay, what are the visual identifiers of shyness? You know, they're like... They're like, you know, maybe beads of sweat or maybe playing with your hands or maybe over drinking too much or straightening your shirt or your pants. Mm -hmm. I start thinking about the things that make up the obstacle to why the scene isn't ending right away. And I started thinking about coverage in terms of that. How can I direct this ball to what this scene is truly about, which is not the dialogue at all, which is about what is preventing this person from actually accomplishing this scene right now? And I just try to think about the visual tags that make up that obstacle. And I find that, you know, again, two people talking, there's so much rich stuff that can go on there between the food that they order or the, yeah, yeah. Or the food that they don't order or between the, you know, the meal that's sitting there, between, you know, there's hands, there's expressions, there's eyes, there's passerbys, there's reflections through windows, through pots, through pans, through, you know, a yeah, napkin yeah. holder. You know what I mean? I just think I, I just would never just shoot them talking to each other because I think that's not what that scene is about. And if it is and there's nothing more, it needs a rewrite. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If it's really just two people blabbing, then I don't think it, that's, I, is this scene even necessary? Yeah. Right? So I think that that's why I'm saying like, I, I don't like to leave it to chance on set because I think that amount of analysis has to happen ahead of time to truly know what the scene is about. And if the scene is about something important, you start realizing, oh, it's this. And you know, and how can I shoot the subtext? I just think shooting subtext is so much more gratifying because you just get to an angle that, you hadn't thought of before, or you're adding to the dialogue, right? You know, when I was in school, they always said, you know, one of my screenwriting professors was like, they hated VO. If you put VO, you automatically got, you know, a, a one grade lower. I love VO. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing people say about VO is it cannot be saying what's already on screen, right? You know, like somebody walks in the door and they're like, oh, and then the VO goes, I was really tired. But yeah, I could see that. You just went, oh, when you walked in, yeah. right? So your VO wants to add a layer. And I think the same thing should be about coverage. If your coverage isn't adding something that the story isn't already telling me visually, then you're wasting your coverage. That's how I view it. And so I always try to think about how the coverage can just add either character or story or context or subtext. And if it can't do any of those, maybe the scene isn't necessary. Hmm. That's interesting. You've already kind of answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If I'm giving you a script... Mm -hmm and you read the script, what is your process for figuring out how to visualize it, how to come up with kind of the grammar of that particular film of, you know, well, wide angle means this or, 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 or don't you do that? I, you know, I don't, I, you know, the same torturous thing about how I write is how, how, how I read. It takes me a long time to read a script. Mm -hmm. And that's why so, so many of my film school friends send me their scripts for notes. And I'm like, I hope you have three, four months because it, it takes me so long. And the reason is I'll read it and I, and I pre-visit in my mind. I start seeing it already and and I'll turn and then that's why sometimes, you know, I'll stop 
and go back three or four pages and reseed if I saw it correctly the first time, if I got confused. It takes me so long. But but I would say I do cheat in the sense that I can kind of pre-visit already. Where it gets tricky is when I then meet with the director and they don't see it that way. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, that's when the hard work starts. But the cool thing is when people do, or I've worked with a lot of directors who are like, just do your thing. I just want to work with the actors. Really? Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that happens a lot. That happens a lot because a lot of the directors come from screenwriting, you know, and so a lot of them don't really know how they want to shoot it. They just know how how the words should sound. They know the intent and the meaning of the lines and how they want the actors to say them. And they'll just be like, you just tell me how you want to shoot it. And I'm fine with that because I have a pretty good idea mm-hmm. of how I'd want to shoot it. You know, when, when you shoot for other directors, do you prefer that? Or do you prefer a director who comes in with like a serious agenda about a, how they want to do it? Directors who really know what they want is also a ton of fun because then you're really, you're, you're really focusing on the minutia of the craft when it comes to that, you know? So I've done some commercials with directors who really, really specific storyboard. They know exactly what they want. And then it's really, for me, just turns into, a, you know, what I call a cherry exercise where you're just cherrying the lighting and the composition. Everything is just about fine tuning. A lot of times when you don't have that, especially, you know, when you have to find it on set, some directors just don't like to prepare that much. They just feel like they want to keep it fresh. They want the actors. They want to find it with the actors, which is absolutely a fair process. Uh, that is harder for me because I'm on there and I'm thinking, you know, while I'm there and I'm looking and I'm creating opportunities and all of a sudden, they start moving in a direction that is not so good. You know, they're yeah. leaning up against the walls or against a piece of glass or something. You're like, oh God, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> but you're not, you're not directing. Yeah. So you can't pull them away. Every once in a while I will. I'll kind of tell the director, hey, what do you think about here? Because I know in my mind if we will save 45 minutes if I can get them off that wall. And you can sell almost any idea to a director if you tell them it's going to save them 45 minutes. It's exactly right. I mean, and honestly, it's that I've, I've had good luck with the actors doing that as well. I've just, you know, you know, I'll sometimes an actor will be over there and I'll just be like, I can't tell you how beautiful you look when you stand right here. It's incredible. So let's talk a little bit about the, the technology turn. And I want to, as much as you can, don't let me forget, this is about creativity. Like yes. we can get in the weeds about you know, deburring and coding and compression schemes and codecs and whatnot. Yeah. But like, I, I'm mostly interested and I think our listeners are mostly interested in like how this should dictate a creative choice. And, you know, imagine someone five years from now is listening to it. So, you know, our 3d files don't exist anymore. Correct. Yeah. I mean, so do you want to talk about something specific well, related to that? Well, let, let's just kind of talk about how you made the turn to technology and like how technology informs the kinds of creative choices you make. Yeah. Because I think five, 10 years from now, that'll be the same. Yeah, it is. And, and again, you know, I've never much like I, I never, when I was an undergrad, even though I was studying math and econ, I never made the turn towards film. I, in my view, I was always in it because I was doing theater. Mm-hmm. Once I, you know, graduated and once I went through film school, I never made a turn towards technology. It was always in me. It was in me when I was doing digital 3D shots at Pixar. And it was in me when I started, basically um, went back to live action. And part of that had to do with, you know, always trying out new instruments, always trying out new production tools and toys. And, And just being really interested in what makes our images the way they are, right? For purely creative intent. Well, were you, were you one of those people that when digital came along, you were like, I'm done with film, forget it. Not or, at all. or were you one of those people who were like, this doesn't look as good as film. That's exactly right. I you know, here's the thing. I, I had a, a professor, Tom DeNovi. I remember my first year in cinematography and he's a great guy. 
And he was like, film is dead. Film is dead. But this was in 93. What? Yes, exactly. And we're in 2017 and film is not dead. And so what I realized. It's, it's on life support. It's on life support. But, you know, some of what it represents is not dead for yeah. sure. And what, what the, main, the main thing for me was I don't think you can say film is dead if the image that you're replacing with it has issues, right? Where if you're saying, well, it's not quite as good, but it's almost as good, let's call it dead. No, it's like as a creative, as an artist, you should be able to create the perfect canvas you're looking to create. If you want to paint with oil, paint with oil. If you want to yeah. you know, paint on, on, you know, on paper with pencils, do that. And there's no excuse for the final image. It's what you wanted. You wanted pencil on paper. Yeah. And I felt like when I would look at film, film did a lot of things that digital just could not do. Highlight roll off. There was a, there was a certain sensitivity to it. There was a colorimetry to it. Um, I mean, shoot a pair of blue jeans is what I tell people. Take some 5219 Kodak Vision 3 and shoot a person wearing blue jeans. And then good luck getting it to look like that on any camera system. Because... Film has a cyan, magenta, and yellow layer. The yellow layer is dedicated to shooting blue. In CMOS cameras, there is no blue, essentially. We're creating, it's, it's 50, you know, the, the camera is mainly green, half blue, half red. So you're shooting with a blue deficient camera, trying to create blue. Now, that's a bit of a nerdy thing to say, but if you think about it, the tool sets all have a language today, and that's what got me interested in it. I started thinking to myself, film is its own palette, and the HVX 200 is its own palette, and the yeah. red is its own palette. And I wanted to learn more about the palettes, and that's what got me, I guess, leaning harder on the technology side. Is um, When the Vericam came out, it was one of the first kind of big HD cameras along with the F900 to kind of shore in HD. And I learned a lot about the Vericam. I started teaching uh, this class called Vericam along with um, Bob Primes. I remember that. Yeah, so I, I went all over the country teaching the Vericam. It was a three-day lighting and tech seminar on the camera. And I was really teaching it as a way for me to learn more about it, to force myself to, to discover and, 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 and study this new tools. I had shot film for four years when I was in film school. I hadn't really shot a lot of digital. Uh, I shot some HVX 200, but well, I had, in 1993, what what did you have to shoot digitally? Well, there was the PD 150. It was yeah. all the standard F stuff. There was Not the in HVX. 1993. The the, the PD 150 no. doesn't come around till like 97. Right. So the first three years of film, there was nothing but film. Yeah. So I, came, I was in film school from 93 to 98. Mm -hmm. No, sorry, uh, uh, not 93. Uh, from 97 to uh, 2002. So it was in there in the mid 90s. I moved to LA in 93. Okay. That's when I started uh, doing theater stuff. So basically I got my, accepted into film school in 97. And even then we didn't have, what was starting, the documentary department, I think got their first XL1 and there might've been uh, the PD-150. Maybe that was in my second year, but it was not in our department. So all yeah. we had was film and we only had flatbeds. There was no, no way around that. But I do remember in my third or fourth year, close to the end, the HVX, had just come out. We didn't know what it was about. It had a tape thing. It had these weird things called P2. Yeah. <laughs> and it was only four gigs, but it was $2,000 per four gig card. But at the, I already saw that, you know, there's something interesting happening here is that we're looking to move imagery forward. And, and that's why early on I said to myself, you know, we're going to surpass the dynamic range of film and we're going to surpass the colorimetry of film. We'll be in these gamuts at one point that are going to encompass film. But the one thing we're never going to do properly is texture. And the reason is, is quite simple. To get more dynamic range on a camera, you need higher signals noise. What that basically means is you need less noise on your camera to get extra stops in the shadows. 
Well, when we can finally get to 19 or 20 stops of dynamic range on a camera, it means there will be lifeless cameras. It'll be plastic, sharp plastic looks, which is the opposite of film, mm-hmm. right? Film is dimensional and has cyan, magenta, and yellow layers, and each layer has different uh, silver halide particles in it. So it's actually 3D. Film is truly three-dimensional. If someone walks in front of a window, the texture on the person's face is different than the texture on the window. That's called occlusion. And that occlusion happens all the time on a film. There's no grain sitting in front of the screen. The grain is behind the screen coming forward. And that specific thing is what led me to kind of investigate how do we get depth out of digital cameras. And a few years ago, about five, six years ago, I started this project called LiveGrain, where basically um, I started looking at the technical specs of film and the RMS granularity and comparing them to the characteristic curves that Kodak and Fuji were publishing and asking myself, is, is there a way we can take a digital image and map it to a characteristic curve of a stock for every single point and essentially find a way to get three-dimensional texture in a video image that you control. So you can go ahead and shoot these really sharp cameras, these really still cameras, and then add analog texture to your liking that you can modulate for storytelling purposes. And that was the key to me is that I love telling story through texture. I love movies that have texture in them. I think about movies like 21 Grams. Mm -hmm. I mean, you cannot have a movie like that without texture. Babel, you know, I'm a huge fan of Rodrigo Prieto's work. And I look at the texture in all of his pieces and they're specifically modulated for storytelling purposes. And I thought to myself, well, now with 85% of the industry shooting Alexa, you're talking about everybody shooting log C and white color gamut. We're all painting with the same canvas. And you've got a DP who's going to go from Showtime to HBO to Netflix, moving his gaffer with him and taking his Alexa with him. You're essentially moving your palette across all the networks. And, it, you know, there's getting a little bit of fatigue. I think the, there's a bit of image fatigue in the sense that the shows are looking a lot the same because everyone's painting with the same oil and the same canvas. And I sought to kind of maybe change that and find a way to have you say, okay, this is my color, this is my density, and this is my texture and make the texture unique to your show. And so how did you go about developing that? Basically, um, it started off as a Photoshop um, exercise where basically I would bring in digital, bring in a still and start breaking down the layering and finding out where those cross points were, how to map the granularity, how to map the depth. And then it was moving that into After Effects and figuring out how that could move over time. But the big test of it was really when True Blood, you know, HBO's True Blood did six seasons of film. And then in the seventh season, they were looking to save a whole bunch of money by going digital. And they had tried a whole bunch of, you know, graining processes, which mainly means plugins that use video noise or just overlaying a piece of film on top of it. And the, the producers and the executives were like, no, it looks like it looks terrible. It's not going to work. You know, it's never going to cut with the rest of the season in the box set. And at the time, I had already kind of worked out pretty well this technique of basically creating multi-dimensional layering. So what, what year was this about? This was um, at season seven of True Blood. I think that was three and a half or four years ago. Okay. Three, yeah. Is that like one of their last seasons? It was their last season. Okay. So they already knew they were going to end at season seven. They wanted to do one more season to close out the Got series. It. And, but you know, because you know, the show had already been going on for six years. They were looking to save some money on the seventh season and film was very expensive for that, that type of show. They thought if we could just shoot digital, we could make that season happen and not have to cut any episodes, but they couldn't find a way to make it match. And at the time, like I said, I had already figured out generally the technique. I wasn't sure how to make it run yet, but I knew how it should work. And so we did a test. They shot, um, dragon, Alexa and film 
on the set with the actors, the stand-ins, and we brought it in, and uh, the colorist, Scott Klein, at Technicolor, graded it, the digital stuff, as he grades the film, and then it was given to me. And basically, at the time, it took a little while to render. Uh, I didn't have it working as an independent unit yet, and then we rendered out test material, and they basically brought the execs in the room and brought the creatives and the DPs who shot it. And we did eight shots, and we wiped back and forth, and we're like, just, you don't have to pick out the Alexa specifically, but just tell us when you see film and when you see digital. And out of the eight clips, um, most people got six out of the eight wrong. Whenever they saw it, they were looking at film, they were looking at Alexa. Whenever they thought it was Alexa, it was red. And so essentially they could not tell the difference between my process with digital and the film itself. Now, I mean, like, did you, how, I don't even know how to ask this question because I've never talked to anyone who's developed a software, but like, Uh did you personally like write this software? So initially it was, it's a, the, the methodology I was using was using third party tools, Mm -hmm. right? It was stuff like, like you can do in After Effects and Photoshop, which is just create mats and layers. And then essentially what I realized was this was not going to work unless I could play it inside of a color corrector. If, unless it was real-time software yeah. that could apply this texture in real-time to a product. And so when I we finally passed the smell test, if you will, at HBO, and they were like, okay, we will use this product in combination with the Alexa to replace film, go ahead and make it. That's when I basically started hiring engineers because I had been working with Google for a while already. You know, I could say they've been a client for a bunch of years. So I had seen, I'd been around engineers for a long time. I kind of understood the process. My undergrad was in math and computer science. Yeah. So I had a sense of what it would take, but I'm not a coder. I haven't coded in years. And I also knew the type of stuff that needed to happen was low level GPU coding. We needed to write our own codec. Um, there's a lot of stuff that had to happen. And so it started off small. I started off with a handful of engineers. We raised some money. How, how did HBO even, how did, how did they know about you and in, in this process? So I've been, I've been working with HBO for a few years already. So mm-hmm. I shoot something called the HBO camera assessment series. So this is season five right now with those guys. And basically what that is, is every year we sit down with the showrunners. We ask them, you know, what, what are your concerns when you're shooting fire, fast motion, strobes, whatever it is. And we recreate scenes from each show and then shoot those scenes on every digital cinema camera out there. And then we cut that into a one hour documentary. And so it's a pretty involved thing. And we shoot like, you know, we've had fire scenes from Game of Thrones. We've, we shot Olympic fencing to test out. Uh, we shot uh, Olympic boxing, you know, full ring with two contender fighters to test out motion. We've built all kinds of sets. And, you know, it's a pretty involved uh, situation. So I'd already been working with them for, at that point, for three years. I mean, dare I say this is kind of a Pixar-ish move for HBO to make. It is. It is. Yeah. I mean, it really was. I mean, I was not. Yeah, you're right. It was. (laughs) I mean, I think what I had showed them was that I had definitely an ability to make stuff happen that I said I could make happen. I would pitch these very grandiose tests and ideas and they'd be like, really? And I would make it happen. So I think I, I won that part over, which is I wasn't a bullshitter. I could make it happen if I said I could. And the second part was they saw in me someone who really... You know, I, those HBO CAS, I directed an IDP. So I cast, I do casting, I do everything myself. You know, I mean, we have a casting director, but I'm saying I direct and DP that series and I have for the last five years and they see the quality of it. And so I think I came to a point where they just trusted my eye to a certain degree where I would say, you know, I think if I did this and this, I believe I can make this happen. And they had no reason not to believe that after seeing the work for the last three to four years. And so, but you're right, it was still a big leap of faith. One, because they had made the commitment based on me saying, 
I will get this to work in a color grader by the time you're grading episode one, you know, 701, (laughs) which means they abandoned film, started shooting on the Alexa. Had I not come through, I don't know what would have happened. And the Alexa beat the red. The Alexa beat the red. Yes. Mm -hmm. In that particular case. And I think part of it was when you're coming from film, the fact that, you know, the airy scanner exists. I mean, the Alexa is an airy scanner with a body on it. You know, so they're so used to scanning film that you get a lot of the characteristics of film uh, when you shoot Alexa. And so, yeah, but the Alexa beat uh, the red in that particular case uh, to, to continue as True Blood for season seven. And so, yeah, so they did, I have to say, I mean, they're amazing people at HBO. They did take a huge leap of faith. They trusted that it could, it could happen. And I then just busted my ass, you know, used every resource I had in the book to just get <laughs> a rudimentary version of, a, of, of this working. Essentially, I had narrowed it down to one stock only, 35 millimeter, a Vision 3, 5219, because that's what the show was using. So I just honed in on that. And by the time the first day of color grade came by, I think it was April 21st, if I still remember. Wow. Uh, we were playing in real time inside of DaVinci Resolve in the color bay. And, you know, I think everybody was surprised. I think that it would happen, including <laughs> myself. I mean, there were, there were days where I'm like, you know, the first iterations we were playing at three frames per second, four, because we're, we're doing about a million computations per frame. Yeah. To analyze every pixel it ain't and every row. I mean, for color, I've added grain density. inside of After Effects. And if you just add film grain inside with a regular native thing, it'll, it'll slow you down. Yeah. So, and this is, imagine using many, 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 many real composite plates of film, but also analyzing every pixel for gamma and density and color, and then doing the offsets, doing the mapping, and then in real time, pushing the image to the to the buffer for the colorist to essentially work in real time. And is this a product that like anyone outside of HBO can get their hands on? Yeah, so that, so that was years ago, right? That's when we started four years ago. Since then, we, you know, it's it's expanded greatly. We, we now have a team of, uh, you know, five full-time engineers. The staff has gone a lot bigger because essentially we're doing a lot more shows. So the second show right out of the gate was uh, Martin Scorsese. You know, we did base, we did vinyl with Scorsese. Oh, wow. Yeah, with Scorsese and Rodrigo Prieto. And Rodrigo, to me, is the texture guy. I mean, if anybody who knows, and obviously Marty is the film guy. And there I got a call from HBO basically saying, listen, they're going to test uh, 35 mil, they're going to test 16 mil, and they want to test the F55 and the Alexa. And, you know, we think, you know, obviously it's a long shot. We're probably going to shoot film. But if you want to go ahead and show Rodrigo what your stuff can do. And I was like, sure. And I went up to New York and I hung out with those guys for about a week. We did tests. And, and, and Rodrigo is the most meticulous guy I've ever met. I mean, his camera tests are unbelievable. And his eye is unbelievable. And, you know, we looked at it. And after playing for about a week, you know, I got a call saying they're going to shoot it with live grain. So they, instead of shooting film, they end up shooting with a Sony F55 with my process on it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that opened up a lot of doors. We got into American Cinematographer. Once that men- that mention came out, American Cinematographer, Rodrigo was so generous. You know, he talked a lot about the process. And so I think we were three pages out of the five page vinyl article. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then the phone just started ringing, you know. Well, and Scorsese's he's never been afraid of of innovation in digital. He's not one of those purists who won't shoot film. Yeah, exactly. And his DP, I mean, Rodrigo is one of those guys where what I love so much about him is he doesn't have a style. If you watch his movies, Alexander compared to Broback Mountain, yeah. you can't tell it's the same DP. If you look at 21 Grams versus Wolf of Wall Street, they don't look like the same DP. He really just goes for the story and he just changes his style radically. And I think that... You know, it, it took those two courageous guys to say, let's give it a shot. You know, ever since then, now, now we have shows on ABC, on IFC, on A&E, Sony, Netflix, Amazon. 
Yeah, that it just kind of grew from there, you know, and I've got a ton of stuff I'm going to add to the product. I literally, you know, I I use it as a personal barometer. It's just stuff I want. Yeah. Right? I go like, oh, I want to be able to do this. And then so I direct the engineering team to do that. And then I'm hoping that if I want to do it, some other DP wants to do it. It's literally been the litmus test from the beginning. There's never been a uh, like a, a pool of people that we, that I poll. I don't do taste testing. There hasn't been like testers. Uh, we don't really take feedback. I mean, <laughs> honestly, because, you know, I just think you end up getting a weird watered down product. You know, I think that what, I, what I've always done is trusted my eye. I've always had a pretty good eye and I think I have a good eye for technology and hopefully for art. And for me, LiveGrain is the perfect blend of those two things. And I literally, every decision that happens to LiveGrain is purely subjective. Like sometimes I'll have fights with my engineers. So I'll be like, that's mathematically correct. I'm like, it doesn't look good. But they're like, but that's correct. That's the right way to render that. I'm like, I don't care. It doesn't look good. I'm like, make it wrong then. But it doesn't look right. And so we'll have these huge battles because the engineers want to do it a certain way. And I don't blame them. That's how they're trained. But I feel like this tool is a creative tool. It's meant to allow you to modulate your story in real time and tell a story with texture. For example, we did a Stanford prison experiment with a DP, Jazz Shelton, and it was amazing. You know, he came to me and he's like, if I shot it on film, I'd start with, you know, three perf, then I'd go to two perf, push one stop. In the middle of the second act, I'd like to go even harder, but I'd like to pull it back for the third act. That's what he would have done had he shot film. And we did exactly that with LiveGrain. We mm-hmm. basically said, why don't you shoot it clean, color correct it, and we'll just modulate the texture as it goes in real time to kind of follow the narrative of the story. So if you just move the cursor in the film through time, the grain doesn't match at all through the movie. But when you watch it, you don't notice at one point there's this anxiety that keeps building up because the grain is like a, two, you know, a 52-19 push two stops. And you're just like, uh, it just feels really gritty. And then all of a sudden there's a resolution to the third act and it pulls back. And that to me is the intent of texture. You shouldn't be bound to what the camera manufacturer has to do to get you 15 stops of dynamic range. They don't want to do that. They have to do that. So let them do that. And then let us be able to pick and modulate the texture separately as an artistic tool. Um, so is live grain like your main focus right now? Right now, it's it, you know three years ago, it was 15% of my time. Last year, it was about... 30%. This year, it's about 50%. I still, you know, I still force myself to keep shooting and mainly because I don't want to lose track of why I made the tool. Yeah. You know, I want to keep knowing that I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. And I want to be able to also interact with other DPs and find out what they want out of it. Now, you know, we've got a stable of some really cool DPs that are using it. So it's great to get feedback from them because they're like, oh, they're looking for this. They're looking for that. But a lot of times, you know, the tool set is getting probably larger than it needs to be. It's just stuff that I want. They're just happy enough to get something that looks beautiful right out of the gate and just move on, you know? But my goal is, why can't we just start building stocks that Kodak and Fuji never had a chance to make and modulate, take real film and modulate it and create brand new stocks? And that's a lot of what we're doing now is we're creating, and that's the part I find fun. I'll get a call from like Dave Klein, who's an amazing DP. He shoots Homeland and a few other things. And he'll call me and be like, hey, I want to use Live Grain. Can you come back and help me build some custom stocks for the show? We'll go in, sit, and we'll watch, you know, the first pass color, and we'll literally build stocks, custom stocks hmm. for the show. So in order to work with LiveGrain, does somebody need to go to you to do it, or is it something that you can somehow get work with another facility or work yeah. as a plugin? So the, basically, it, it works as a service through LiveGrain certified post facilities, which is all the big players now. Mm-hmm. So uh, Company 3, eFilm, Technicolor, Encore, Level 3, Harbor Post. I mean, there's a lot of places now that are certified to run LiveGrain. 
And essentially the model is very similar to Dolby Digital. So if you want Dolby Digital Encode on your movie, you sign a license agreement with Dolby, Dolby says, hey, where are you mixing? Oh, I'm at Glen Glen Sound, great. We'll make sure our box is there when you show up. We do the same thing, like DPs call us and they go, I go, where are you coloring? Oh, I'm gonna be at Company 3 in Santa Monica, great. I'll make sure the box is there ready to go when you're there. And so essentially, we train facilities for free, we install for free, we maintain for free, so we cost nothing to the facility. The show itself gets a license to use it, and they tell us, where do you wanna be? And so we follow the, the artist anywhere they go in the world, essentially. And so we do remote training, remote processing, um, we, we send all of our hardware, and then we train the colorist. It's, a, it's about a two hour certification process for a colorist, where we teach them and then they kind of, we act as if we're a client, we ask for changes and trims and stuff like that. But then, you know, it's still a service. So if any DP at any point wants me to come in and take a look or, or you know, wants help building a custom stock, I just come in. You know, I was in, I was in Rome a couple of days ago for the, um, my brilliant friend, it's a new co-pro between HBO and, and Arai, and they were you know, all about that. They were like, you know, show us the different types of things we could do. Forget how Kodak would normally have done this. If we're not gonna shoot film, maybe let's find something newer than that. Uh, and that's the exciting part for me now, is like, I love film, I really do, I'm a big fan. It's just, as you mentioned, it's so hard to shoot on film, mainly because of the labs. You know, there's, it's, it's hard to get the right turnaround. It's hard to get the right consistency. The quality control isn't what it used to be, even at, you know, at the stock level. You know, we, there was this one project, I'm not going to name it, HBO. They were going to shoot film and they did a camera test. They shot 4,000 feet. All 4,000 feet were bad. There was dye striation, separation, oh, striping. And this is brand new. They got it from Kodak, processed it, and all of it was bad. Yeah. So I just think, you know, like I said, I'm a huge fan, but I just think it, it's it's getting harder and harder to get work done um, and get the right turnarounds and get the dailies and all that stuff on film. So I'm hoping, you know, I, ironically, and people say, oh, you, you feel bad about killing film. I'm like, I'm not killing film at all. I'm preserving it. You know, I, I hope we keep shooting film for the next hundred years. I really do, because I love it. I, that's all I shot when I was in film school. I just don't think it's feasible, but I don't want what film brought to go away, which is this beautiful dimensional texture. I always feel like I ask this question every time I talk to somebody who's got a technology driven way to do something. Like I asked this when I went to Lowry Digital and saw mm -hmm. their restoration process. And it's like, how long till this becomes something that's just a, that that can be purchased as an After Effects plugin or, or a, a resolved plugin? Well, here's the, f the funny thing is it's, it requires a lot of engineering. So right now, for example, to do 4K, you need to, you know, we do it on Linux and it's uh, three Titan X cards. Um, you know, you need a SAN that can play back at 600 megabytes per second. So the, the idea is it's really not easy for a kid on a laptop to just apply well, this, right? Now, just melt. You know. True. So the, so people go, well, okay, but in five years from now, that'll be, you know, one microprocessor worth of stuff. But the reality is there's a ton of other stuff yeah. I want this thing to do. And a lot of the things I want to do, we don't even have the GPU cycles available today. Yeah. So on our development board, when I asked my devs, I want to do this, they're like, oh, there's, there's no processor that can do that in real time. So we literally put a timeline map of when we expect hardware to be fast enough <laughs> for us to implement new features. That's awesome. Yeah, so there's some artificial intelligence, some facial tracking stuff, there's some stuff I wanna do that I'm just waiting for new hardware. So I don't know if there ever will be a day, maybe there will, but I can't imagine a day that we have room left over on the processor. If there's room left over, <laughs> there's stuff I wanna do with it. <laughs>
So, uh, really just one last question Mm -hmm. and that's like, how do you, how do you continue to scratch the edge? Do you still do theater? Do you still want to do that kind of stuff? How do you keep the creativity in your work on a regular basis? Yeah. I mean, I, I I have to say, I definitely absolutely still want to do it. And I think that that's why even with live grain, I I try to be very careful about overbooking myself because I want to be available to still direct and shoot. And right now, I think what's interesting is what live grain has done in some way, you know, I meet these really creative, like I said, getting a chance to sit down with Scorsese and Rodrigo. I mean, that was not really going to happen on my own path. And yet here they are, they have this pilot called Vinyl, they're putting the show together and I'm sitting there looking at their, you know, their hair and makeup tests and their wardrobe tests. And, and you're just like, it does fuel the soul because you're yeah. essentially helping create an image for that show. And then, so doing that has been surprisingly fulfilling, but at the same time, I'm still writing. I've got a few things that I'm writing right now that I'm hoping to direct myself uh, if I can get the chance. I'm always looking at opportunities to shoot. So I think between the writing and, and looking at shooting opportunities and actually, like I said, you know, helping my DP friends on their shows, it still feels very much like I'm creating stuff all the time. That's great. So uh, lastly, before you go, where can people find you and see your work online? I'm not on Facebook. I don't have Twitter. I don't, don't blame me on the Instagram. Facebook. I don't have any social media. Really? Yeah. It's just, it's, you know, it's funny. I was talking to my wife about that and she said, every time I say that to people, they go, yeah, okay. They just think I don't want to give them my information. But it's not. It's true. I have. I have. I have. Well, do you email. have an online reel that people can check out? I or don't. A Vimeo page. I don't. YouTube. I don't. I literally <laughs> have not. I have an email address and a phone number. You know, honestly, what it is is all of my work is referral. One hundred percent. I have. I don't have a resume. It, I do work for people who know my work and want me to work for them. I know it sounds weird. You know, and especially because I'm a freelancer. But, and maybe I would get more work if I had a a bigger presence. Mm -hmm. I, 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 again, you know, I'm a terrible example to follow. Whoever's listening to this, don't do what I'm doing (laughs) at all. I think, I think it's really bad, but so far, you know, knock on wood, that's what this table is made of. It's been working for me. I think that I, 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 people know me and they know what I do and how I do it. And I, uh, I just, I guess, I don't know. The idea well, you're of you're not missing get... out on Facebook. I mean, like the amount of time that you've put into developing live grain, you would have spent a hundred percent of that time just arguing politics with your relatives. That's what I was, you know, I, you know, even, you know, because I'm on the tech side of camera, a lot of times people say, Oh, did you read this on the CML? Did you, you should go post an answer. I'm like, no, I, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get, I don't want to dive in there. Once I dive in, then all of a sudden it's a whole set of responsibilities you have once you participate you kind of have to keep participating. And I feel like in my mind, I've, I have so much going on already between LiveGrain and my clients that I have, like I said, shooting stuff for HBO and the stuff I'm writing that I, I don't know when I would check Facebook or post something to Instagram or tweet, you know? And I also, honestly, this might sound really bizarre. I just don't, I don't think I could post anything interesting. Well, you could just, honestly, you could just set up a Vimeo page where people could look at your your work. Right. Just, I guess just, just like a landing page. You don't have to comment on it or tweet it or Facebook it. You just put it all How there. How do people find it then? Uh, well, I mean, do you have a website of your own, of your own work? No. I mean, <laughs> people would find it cause they would, they'd Google you and, right. and they wouldn't, you, you have an unusual enough name that, uh, you wouldn't turn up on Facebook and it would be you on Vimeo and they'd go look at your stuff on Vimeo. That's true. That's true. 
Yeah, I guess that's that's a good point. Doesn't, I guess it I, doesn't I, sound like you need it. I, you, know, you know, again, I, I'm a terrible marketer when it comes to that. I don't. Is, is know there this. a website for Live Grain that people? There can? is. Uh, it's a splash page. It's basically live-grain.com, and all that it has is essentially contact us. Um, and it, you know, again, you know, here's a funny thing about that is I was in Italy, and I'm sitting with these these guys, and the colorist comes to me and he goes, you know, I went to your website because I was like, who is these Live Grain people? And I see there's nothing there. And I was fascinated. That's literally <laughs> what he said. Now, not by intent, but a lot of a big part of it initially when we started off was we were in beta. We were writing software. Yeah. And I didn't want the site to be bigger than our product was at the time. Now, what's ironic is that the product got bigger than us very quickly. And we're on a lot of shows that are very well known now. We are on the Deuce this season for season one. You know, we're on it vinyl. Looks great. I've already seen it. Yeah. You know, we're, we're on the Deuce. We're on vinyl. We are on True Blood. Um, you know, we're on American Crime, we're on Six, we're like, we're on a lot of these amazing shows. We're on the OA. And now I feel like, well, what's the point of a website? Like, these shows are so amazing that if I had, a, you know, if we added that, I would just probably start just listing credits. So have you go see the work that these artists are making. And I think that's essentially what the product was always meant to be, was to showcase work. Yeah. Um, so I feel like if we start bragging about ourselves, that kind of draws away from what it's really for, which is the shows themselves. I don't know. Again, I'm I'm not good at this. Uh, honestly, you, you are good at this. Apparently, you're quite good at this. <laughs> I, I, I'm muddling my way through it. Put it this way. Um, but at the same time, you know, I I just it's it stays fun. It's been fun from the beginning. It's still a passion for me. I still love doing it. And it, it you know it, for me, ironically, it scratches the digital itch. It scratches that technology side. You know, working with developers turned out to be a lot more fun than I thought. At the same time, you know, being able to work with artists has been really fun. You know, and peers. Uh, has been really fun. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I will never let the artistry go because I, I have to keep that there. If not, I won't know what Live Green's about. You know, it's literally every time I shoot something new, I go, oh, we should have this. We should be able to do that. I want to be able to modulate this. And that's essentially what keeps it alive. Cool. Thank you so much for coming in. Really great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So that was Sunny Bear. Thanks, Sunny. Thanks for coming on. Hope to have you back. Hey, Ben, who's the war story? Well, I hope you're sitting down when I tell you who the war story's from, because it's pretty fucking exciting. I'm sitting. You sitting? Yeah. Rachel Morrison. Rachel Morrison? Rachel Morrison of Fruitvale Station. Mudbound. Dope. And now the upcoming Black Panther movie. Yeah. She is a big deal. I wouldn't say she's an up-and-coming DP. I th- I'd say she's all. one of the top DPs in the field working today. Ab- absolutely. She was. I saw she was recently featured in a Hollywood Reporter special that's uh, online that you can watch right now uh, with like Roger Deakins and uh, Giannis Kaminsky and a bunch of other people. So she's, yeah, she's a big dog. She's totally in that pantheon and, uh, and she belongs to be there. I hope everybody here watches, uh, like if you have Netflix, you can watch Mudbound right now and just see some of her amazing cinematography. And here is her war story. And now, war stories. So I think I was 20, maybe 21, and I got my first chance to PA on a, on a real feature. And not only that, it was one of my heroes, Maddie Petit, who at that point hadn't done Requiem. Nobody else knew who the fuck he was, but he had done this movie Pie, and I was obsessed with him. course I'm trying to get in the camera department and of course it's nepotistic and it goes to the nephew of a producer who'd never I'm sure touch camera again but I spent my entire time kind of following the camera department around like a puppy dog and finally I think the last day of the film 
Maddie's like, do you want to load a Mac? And I was like, terrified, but hell the fuck yeah. I don't know what happened. Like, they showed me 6,000 times how to do it right, and I think I just panicked, and I totally flashed the Mac. And then I was faced with, do I tell him? Don't I tell him? What the fuck? And I, I, it was, I guess it was downloading because they'd already shot it. Like it was not a, okay, we can throw out the bag and just start fresh. And I was just like gutted, devastated. My cinematography career was over and I decided I was gonna tell the truth. And I told Maddie and he was, you know, not thrilled. Thankfully, I think it, it came out okay, and maybe even, like, I think he made some joke about how oh, flashing was good for that scene or something. My dream coming off this film was to ask him to sort of mentor me. I couldn't even, like, face him again for another 15 years or something. As a result, I never had a mentor. This all kind of comes back to Black Panther, but because of my shitty experience flashing this mag for Maddie Boutique, I never asked anybody again to, to mentor me, and therefore the biggest set I'd ever been on was my own. So when I went on to Black Panther, not only had I not ever shot anything that big, but I'd never shadowed anybody. So I literally was walking onto this set like completely blind. And it all comes down to my inability to load. And now, short ends. So that was Rachel Morrison's war story. Tune in very soon. And you'll be able to hear the entire interview with Rachel. <laughs> and and also her cat scratching in the other room. Yeah, cat and a dog outside. We, yeah. we, we recorded the interview at her house. Then it's that time of the show again where we talk about our sponsors. Who's that? Of course, our always sponsor is my company, Hot Rod Cameras. And of That's course, cheating. It's your company. Okay, it is. But uh, it's it's even in like the voiceover at the beginning. It is. So Aerie. Aerie is our other sponsor who makes incredible high-tech tools for motion picture and television production. And the thing I want to talk about today is their WCU4 wireless remote follow focus system. Now, a lot of people don't understand that there isn't autofocus with professional motion pictures. There's someone whose job it is to constantly be adjusting focus so that everything isn't blurry. By the way, I just want to say, if you're listening to our show, you should probably know that somebody's job is to keep your films in focus. Well, if you didn't know it, now you do know this. Well, Aerie has invented a thing they call the WCU4, and this is essentially a small box, like I'd say about the size of a tissue box that someone would would hold in their hands and has a knob on one side, and so they don't have to physically be touching the camera to adjust, or the lens to adjust the focus as actors are moving through a scene or a camera is moving. They have the ability to walk around wirelessly and then adjust the focus on the fly. I mean, I'd say wireless follow focus is a lot like LEDs, where if you go into a set today, you see mostly LED lights, and you're generally going to see a wireless follow focus. Uh, generally, yes. And the Airy one is really, really, really well put together, and it's become incredibly popular. I think we sold two today at our our, our shop, and nice. They are not they are not a cheap system. I mean, we're talking about twelve thousand dollars for a piece of gear that enables camera assistance, focus pullers, to be able to do these amazing sort of tricks with zero delay and silently. That's one of the other issues, at least used to be, is that motors would be noisy but at twelve thousand dollars it is actually a relative bargain there is plenty of other systems out there that are way more expensive so uh, airy 
uh, amazing product. And uh, I'm really, really glad to see that such a robust, small little system is making its way through the industry and really just like tearing it up right now. Well, it's and doing. I mean, it's expensive if you're me and you're buying it for your DSLR. But if you're working on a professional set, $12,000 is a, a bargain when you think of how much time you're going to save not having to have a person physically touching the camera, not blowing focus, somebody who can stand at the monitor or at their own monitor and make absolutely positively sure that everything is super sharp. There is a, a distinct difference in working on a set with a wireless follow focus and, and a, you know manual follow focus on built onto the camera. Yeah, you're running on a, a real professional set when you have that. And not to say that manual follow focuses are not professional sets, but uh, when you've got that access to that sort of tools, it opens up a lot of freedom and creativity. Yeah, it speeds you up. Speeds you up. Get out of there. Get your stuff faster. Don't, don't wait as much. So Ben, it's time to talk about short ends. And uh, I've got a short end that directly relates to stuff we talked about at the beginning, which is old technology. I mean, old technology absolutely still has its place. And uh, some might argue that film is old technology, but actually some of the older technology right now actually creates a look in some ways that is similar to film and everything we've been talking about so far in this episode uh, with Sunny and film grain and, and everything else. But there is a older camera system that came out from Panasonic. And it's, it's interesting because it's one of these polarizing systems where uh, people love to make fun of it. People love to, to put it down, but it's called the AF100. And this camera has sort of a grainy video look. It's a high definition camera, but it has a, it has a lot of noise. I think it has a very natural looking noise. And a lot of people out there uh, agree with me. And I actually had like the two WCU4s this week. I had two people come to this, uh, come into my shop today with their AF100s who are still using it. I've, I've had a, a number of, of who, made, who made the AF100? It's Panasonic. Okay. So, so Panasonic made this camera. Oh, I remember that camera. Yeah. And I, fact, I, I do not share your love of the AF100. I, I know you say that, but uh, it, it, there's a lot of people out there who, who don't like it, but there's a lot of people out there who do and have made really great projects and really good and done really good work with this camera, including this poster directly to our left here for the Raid Redemption. I remember seeing that at the Arclight with you. Oh, that's right. You came with me. Yes. Uh, I, don't, I think you came with me the second time, though. So I, I, I saw you, that movie twice in the theater. You so. slut. <laughs> anyway, uh, Raid Redemption shot on an AF100. And I defy anyone to, to, to watch that movie and go, oh, man, the look on that movie is somehow lacking. And I think that the, the grainy, the grainy, gritty quality of that video of the of the the high definition image that is coming from that camera absolutely serves a story in the same way that like the grain serves pie the same way that the grain serves 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 any project what's happening in this movie is it's a high definition digital signal but it's it's a it's a dark and murky one when you said you were going to talk about old technology i didn't realize i mean like the af100 was like five six years ago right that's right yeah but that's old in the in technology era that is i mean they don't make the af100 anymore you can't go buy a new one i don't but. want one yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't take one if you gave it to me i felt like i used that camera and i felt like it combined everything i didn't like about dslrs with everything i didn't like about handicams in one in one there are people today still using af100s for more than just weddings for more than just like sort of event videography it has it's having a little resurgence and part of it is because of this this quality it has, which is somewhat film-like, somewhat Super 8-like, somewhat 16 millimeter, which is the amount of noise and grain that is like just built into the image. Well, I mean, I saw a short once at a festival that was shot on VHS, and I was like, 
oh, wow, like that's really clever to use VHS as a texture, like to make a film intentionally on VHS. And it was, and this is not very long ago. This is maybe like six years ago, seven years ago. You know, VHS was long since over and I went home and I'm like, I bet I could get a VHS camera on eBay. And I found, you know, like some VHS cameras that probably cost $1,500 in their heyday. And I got them for like, you know, 10 bucks. There, there is something wonderful about this. Now, VHS has a lot less resolution, but that texture and really what we've been talking about this whole episode is texture. We've been yes. talking about the texture of film, the texture of film effects or, or the, the uh, of digital film effects, the, the texture of digital that resembles film in a way. And even some of the more modern cameras, the noise the, the manufacturers strive really, really hard to create a texture that feels reminiscent of film grain. And I think that's kind of wonderful. I love that there that there's all these different ways that you but can. I've never argued with you on a short end, and you've never argued with me. So oh, I, you're gonna you're gonna change that right now? No, no. Yeah, I, I already did because I already <laughs> said that I think the AF100 was a piece of garbage. I forgot what it was because uh, I think I'd blocked it out. I think <laughs> oh, wow, I, you're I'd, cruel. I'd, I'd had uh, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind uh, mind erasing of the AF100. <laughs> But don't you think that Panasonic, because I remember seeing it at NAB and being like, oh, that's such a cool idea. They're going to have a 35 sensor and you can be able to, you know, have interchangeable lenses and like all this cool stuff. And then when I got it in my hands, I'm like, oh, my God, it like what I liked about DSLRs at the time was like, oh, it's not that many buttons. And it's like, you know, you don't you're not fussing with it. And I was like, ah, oh, Panasonic kept their tradition of their rich tradition of deeply embedded menus within menus without added use. I mean, like that camera did not last. It sort of replaced the HVX 200, which I thought was actually a pretty damn good camera. And then immediately, like they didn't do like revisions on that camera. In fact, I sort of feel like the GH2 kind of came hot on its heels and and took the GH line of cameras became what Panasonic wanted that camera to be a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna disagree with you. And actually, um, despite having a hiatus now of several years, Panasonic has just released a new piece of technology that has very much the same sort of grain, but it's it's not in anywhere the same sort of feel as the AF100. It is called the Evo One, and the Evo One is an amazing, amazing camera. And it is really like a mini Vericam. It's like someone took a Vericam and shrunk it down. And for those yeah. of you at home who don't know what a Vericam is, a Vericam is the high-end camera made by Panasonic. It's being used on lots of Netflix productions. I've used one yesterday. It is a fantastic camera. Well, the, this is like a two-pound version of it, and it's really inexpensive. But I, I mean, I, I don't even mean to bag on the AF100 because, like, I love Panasonic cameras. I shot my feature on on uh, the Panasonic. That's true. Uh, H PX 3000. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, uh, man. I love it. I, I owned uh, uh, you and I together went in on a DVX 100 once upon a time. Uh, I, sh I shot a short on the SDX 900, which is the best uh, standard def camera I think that was ever made. And, and here's the thing that that, you know, we've just gone on this love fest of Panasonic of all their old technology and their new technology, but they really have that sort of film textury thing down and and even now that they're getting less and less grain or noise the noise that exists there is very organic is very you know film like and i think that's part of the reason that so many shows are gravitating towards that camera well, system it's their color science too like i feel like they've always uh, rendered right out of the box some of the best creamiest skin tones like the skin tones look really beautiful everyone says that that's that's one area which you know it doesn't matter what color your skin is panasonic renders it extremely well yeah no i'm a big fan of the varicam i just uh, personally do not go with the AF100 and I love I love the Raid Redemption but I, I actually the things I don't like about that movie can no, all be boiled no, down to my no, dislike of that camera no I don't no, like that camera okay I th this is a Siskel Ebert moment right here where I'm 100% disagreeing with you because I think that I think that th those are the moments in which that that movie really shines that 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 texture that look that grittiness is, is sells the story 
All right. <laughs> okay, so Ben, what's your a- short end this agree week? Agree to disagree. <laughs> uh, my short end, I mentioned it actually in the last episode, but it's a series on Netflix directed by one of my favorite directors of all time, Errol Morris. It's called Wormwood. And it's like, if you went into a laboratory and tried to make a TV series that you knew I would watch all of it with baited uh, anticipation, it would be, uh, it would be Wormwood. It's about this, uh, this guy who worked for the CIA who in the 1950s jumped out of a window or was it the ninth? It might've been early sixties, jumps out of a, a window in a hotel and dies. Then it comes out that he had been given LSD without his knowledge involving like a, a secret test that the CIA was doing on their own. MK ultra. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And uh, his son, ever since, has been fighting for the truth. And his son has, you know, spoken to Congress. And and his his son has been on a quest his whole life to get to the bottom of the story. And and it's Errol Morris, who is the best interviewer in the film business, in in the documentary business. Shoot, shot him, and and uh, the interviews are gorgeous. They shot them with ten cameras. He uh, wow. d- he ditched his Interotron, which is the device he used for he basically used i want to say since fast cheap and out of control or maybe before that where people are looking into a teleprompter and he's looking into a teleprompter so so the interview subject would be looking directly into his eyes for those at home who didn't understand that essentially you can imagine a mirror in front of a camera lens that then bounces into a second mirror so the camera is shooting straight through that mirror like a a single-sided mirror and then the person on the side of the camera can look into the mirror and see the eyes of the person yeah. who's the interview subject. So you can, they can essentially have eye contact. I'm all, I'm all jargony going today. Yeah, like, yeah, what's yeah. going on? Yeah. Uh, anyway, but so Errol Morris had used that basically from, I want to say fast, cheap and out of control all the way through. There was a movie he did, I think it was called tabloid just a few years ago, but he's ditched it and uh, he ditched it in. He did one film before this, which he just shot the interviews more conventionally in this one. He has 10, I believe 10 or 13 cameras on every interview. And so he's constantly cutting and it's part of it is because he's trying to create kind of this pastiche, this kind of uh, collage out of the interviews. And then they shot, it's not reenactments, but they shot full scripted dramatic scenes with actors like uh, Peter Sarsgaard and Bob Balaban and Tim Blake Nelson, like amazing actors. And and a huge shout out has to go to uh, the DP Ellen Curras. Curras? I think it's Curras. Yeah. Curras. Maybe when she gets on the show, she'll tell us how to pronounce her name. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ellen Curris, uh, who I've loved her work for years. Like, you know, she's she's one of the best DPs also in the business. And she's just shot amazing stuff. She shot a bunch of stuff for Spike Lee and she shot Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I believe she shot all the narrative stuff. And then a fella named uh, Igor, I'm going to mangle his name and I'm so sorry. It's Igor Martinovic, uh, I believe, shot all the interviews. I could have it backwards. But if I were uh, a betting man, I'd say I would ha- want Ellen Curris shooting all of the dramatic scenes, which are 100% beautiful and intriguing and weird and noir and, and unexpected and, and, and very fresh. It's, it's a very fresh show. And uh, Errol Morris describes it as an everything bagel. I've listened to like 10 interviews with him where he's talking about the making of Wormwood. And it, it's, it's just such a great piece of work. And I'm so glad that something like Netflix exists so that this art could exist in the world. Damn. Damn, that's 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 super super high praise, and uh, I watched the first episode, and I agree, it's not like anything else on TV. So if you do want to see something that's different, yeah, Wormwood is it. Woohoo! All right, so so Ben, that that does it. That that is the end of another episode. Episode eighteen feels like we're doing this a lot. This this host rap thing. I'm so glad. <laughs> and and really, uh, you know, coming up very soon, hopefully within about a week. Rachel Morrison. All right.
So thank you very much. Uh, before we go, we just want to thank the the same bunch of folks. We want to thank uh, Mike Wilbanks, who's our editor, for uh, cutting this episode. I want to do a chant when I when I hear Mike Wil- Wilbanks' name, like Mike, 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 Mike. <laughs> he really has been a, dri- a driving force yeah. in keeping these coming. Um, we want to thank uh, Kay Zalatracci. All the music in the entire show is uh, created by Kay Zalatracci. Awesome. And we want to thank uh, above and beyond uh, our producer, Alana Cody. Uh, Alana has been uh, putting the fire under my ass for sure to to keep going on this stuff. And I think it's uh, increased our output like, you know, a thousandfold over the last month. Oh, yeah. And we got some really, really good interviews coming up in the future and a special Academy Awards cinematography nomination thing we're doing, which that, is going to be cool. It's going to be so badass. So uh, thank you all. And uh, please check us out on, uh, on uh, iTunes. Give us a thumbs up or high stars or whatever they're doing on iTunes. Absolutely. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. If you do one thing, if you want to do one thing for us, cost you no money, go to iTunes and subscribe. Yeah. Tell your friends. And uh, thank you anyway. Thank you for, uh, for coming out to the Cinematography Podcast, and we'll see you on the next one. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.